Ladies and gentlemen, to those among you who are easily frightened, we suggest you turn away now. To those of you who think they can take it, we say, welcome. Nothing But The Night by the Kenny Wayne Shepherd Band from the 2017 album Lay It On Down, available on Apple Music. Jeff, welcome to this edition, episode 35, the real episode 35 of the Classic Chorus Club podcast. I know Jeff is usually the one that starts this off. He wanted me to do it, and I'm feeling like I'm just winging it here. But welcome. This is episode 35, and I am Rich Chamberlain from MonsterMovieKid.wordpress.com and KCCinephile.com. Hey, Richard. I'm Jeff Owens from ClassicHorrors.club. Yeah, I usually introduce the song, but I couldn't really think what to say about that. I don't even know what genre that was. It's like a little bit country or something. And a little bit rock and roll. (laughs) But yeah, nothing but the night. We are... Playing that song because one of our movies is nothing but the night. And I'm sorry for that. (laughs) Our our theme this month, I think you were going to give that to me. Our theme this month was was my idea. We're going to go into this episode. If you you played along at home, yeah, this is one of those months where it, it sounded better on paper. Sounded better, looked better on paper. We went with a school kids gone bad theme. And we covered three films this month, one of which... Is, is a little harder to find. In fact, I don't even think it's on YouTube. I couldn't find it on YouTube. So you're probably going to have to find a bootleg DVD copy or it's, or rent it on Amazon Prime. I'm talking about Unman, Wittering, and Zygo from 71. And then we also covered the, uh, the film from Christopher Lee and, and Peter Cushing that no one talks about. Nothing But The Night from 73, and then the made-for-TV flick with a couple of Charlie's Angels, Satan's School for Girls, also from 73. I don't think you should apologize. I mean, you win some, you lose some. I think that we'll get some good conversation out of these movies, and, uh, you know, guilty pleasures, whatever we say, I, I don't think you need to apologize. And I know that no matter what we do, it will always be better than the infamous Christmas on Mars episode of the B-Movie cast. So I can say that these movies collectively and individually are better than that film. So uh, if, if Vince Rotolo, if the legendary Vince Rotolo can have an off month, I guess we can too. But I think I think we got some cool things to say. And maybe, you know, I, of the three films, I'm willing to bet most people have probably even haven't heard of Unman, Wittering, and Zygo, let alone seen it. And that's a film that... Of the three, I think, yeah, it's, it's definitely worth tracking down and, and checking out. And we'll talk about that shortly. Yes, and for all of you who think Satan's School for Girls is a Shannon Doherty movie, no, 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 there is a classic that that was a remake of. So you may be in for an education today on that. 
the the reason Richard said this is the real episode 35 is because we got done recording last time and it was episode 34. I made a comment about, wow, can you believe it? Episode 35, I was talking about our next episode. Well, I had in my head that we had just done episode 35. I didn't want to edit it because I thought everyone might get a second download into their feed. So apologies for that. This is the real episode 35. We are going to now change the title of episode 34. So if you get to into your feed, I, I apologize, but th this is the real episode 35. That's somewhat of a landmark. Congratulations, Richard. Did you think we'd go that far? <laughs> I did not. You know, we've been doing this for over two and a half years now, so we're closing in on the big three, third, three, third, third anniversary, uh, and uh, we're not quite to episode 50 yet, but we, we can see it on the horizon. Well, let's go ahead and call the meeting to order. And welcome everybody again to the podcast and to this month's meeting. We have a couple of new members. We want to do roll call and welcome them. Bill Clements and Jeremy PC. These are people that have joined our Facebook group page, the Classic Horse Club Podcast. And we appreciate the growing membership there and the conversations and comments that go back and forth amongst our listeners in that particular format. I'm trying to think if I was aware of that. I might have missed those being welcomed to the group. So if I didn't like that Facebook post, I apologize, because I always try to, to welcome the new uh, members to the group as well. I'm, and for some reason, I'm thinking I might have missed those. Yes, yeah, so Bill and Jeremy, it's nothing personal. If, if Richard didn't, you know, he doesn't know you, he hasn't been stalking your page and thinks, I don't want to say hi to those guys. Just a senior moment. Old business. We don't really have any. Not that we didn't make mistakes last time, but. No, I, see, we talked about this. This yes. is our perfection, is <laughs> yeah, finally oh, coming yes, through. Yes, yes. But we do have some a fantastic voicemail from Nicholas Hatcher. If you remember, he suggested our last episode, a tribute to Fay Ray. And I'm very glad he took time to comment and respond after listening to that. Let's let everyone hear what he had to say. Rich and Jeff, this is Nicholas Hatcher. Wow, all the kind words you said have uh, given me the guts to call in instead of write in to the Classic Horrors Club podcast. I'm just thrilled, absolutely thrilled that you took my suggestion and turned it into a whole episode. It was such an honor to be able to hear all about the uh, great films of our beloved Faye Ray. For me, it was fun to hear about some of the films that other classic horror podcasts don't really usually cover very often. I recognize that most of these films aren't considered the best of the best and may not rank in many top 10 or 15 lists of classic horror except for King Kong, but they give me a good feeling and when I watch them and any chance to see my dear Faye is worth it. I gotta disagree on a couple points uh, with you, Rich. I, I think the two-strip Technicolor process gives really gives an extra creepy factor to Dr. X and especially Mystery of the Wax Museum. I would really like to see the black and white versions too. I, I agreed with you on that. It'd be cool to, to get that kind of pristine black and white look. I kind of hate that those versions have kind of become lost since the resurgence of the color stuff. I don't, I don't agree with just getting rid of the, the black and white stuff too, especially since that's what people saw for so many years. I'd rather kind of have both of them available. So hopefully those turn up at some point although i don't know if we would see them considering kind of how people treat both of those movies right now as kind of extras or on a throwaways on a box set or something I'm kind of surprised on the negative reaction to the clairvoyant as well you know I, I heard your guys points but i just i love the creepy story and 
in my book, any chance to get to see Claude Rains in more genre work is just absolutely worth it. I also kind of like the little bit of a meteor role that, that Faye has in this movie. She gets a little bit more to do than in some of the other ones. You know, not the best movie in the world, but something I enjoy, so to each their own. Above all, though, I just you guys really treated her fairly, especially considering some of the roles she was given in a couple of these films, and I really agree that it was a shame that King Kong didn't sort of jumpstart her career. I would have loved to have seen her take some meteor roles and to really dive in and, and do some, some better work, some more leading leading work that a lot of other actresses were taking on at the time. A couple notes. You guys will probably catch these on Old Business, but just in case you don't, Most Dangerous Game was released by Alpha Video. Obviously, you know, if you're going to if you're going to get the film, the only real way to go is the Criterion. I have the Criterion Blu-ray, and uh, I just checked Amazon. I could be wrong, but it looks like it may, may have gone out of print, or maybe it just is temporarily not available. But, but if you've never seen Most Dangerous Game and you're looking at getting it, there's only one way to go, the Criterion. I think that goes for most of the movies on this list. If you, if you can snag the Blu-rays, especially on Vampire Bat, I would. Mystery of the Wax Museum also was released as a bonus feature on the Blu-ray as well of House of Wax. Uh, it is available on the Blu-ray, so it has had a Blu-ray release. And I also recently noticed that Mystery of the Wax Museum did get its own DVD release. I don't know how the quality is or who it's from or anything about the extras. I've seen the cover. I doubt that Warner Brothers, I'm assuming the ones who would put out House of Wax on Blu-ray, I doubt that they released the DVD. It may even be a bootleg, but that's just, I've noticed on Amazon that there has been a DVD release from Mystery of the Wax Museum. So if any of you out there know anything about it, uh, call in. Um, and also, if you're interested in learning just more about Faye Ray, she has a great autobiography called On the Other Hand. The cover is her in Kong's hand, so I kind of think there's the joke. I, it's a great read, really light, great read. It just goes through her life. Don't expect any uh, juicy tidbits about her genre films are King Kong. She kind of blows through those real fast. I, I don't think she thought much of them, as we've previously stated. I don't think she really thought much of her of her genre work, which is a shame because, you know, she did a good job in those films, and ultimately that's what she is remembered for today. But it will definitely give you a better idea of her life story and all of the struggles that she went through with her marriages, especially her first marriage, and... Her acting roles and the kind of roles that she was given, you you definitely get the the idea that she wanted something meatier. She wanted a little more. It's a great read. I would pick it up. I've got a, I think I've got a couple of copies actually. They're they're pretty easily available out there. You know, I wish that she talked a little bit more about the films that we love, but it's all right. It's still interesting just to learn about her life. Also, her daughter just released a book about her parents. It's called Faye Ray and Robert Riskin, A Hollywood Love Story, I believe. I just got it from Amazon a few weeks ago. It just came out. I'm dying to read it. Also, October Monster Bash, which I will be attending, is whole, the first day of the October Monster Bash this year is Faye Ray Day. Her daughter, Vicki Riskin, who wrote the aforementioned book, she's going to be a guest all day, on that uh, Friday, there will be showing Fay Ray movies all day, including a pretty rare one that I haven't seen. I don't have the title in front of me, but just go to the uh, Monster Bash site and you'll see it there. I, what can I say? I'm I love Fay Ray. I'm very excited that this happens to be one of the bashes I get to go to. Very excited to meet her daughter and uh, hopefully 
have a nice little talk with her and get to listen to her Q&A. Looking forward to being at the October Bash. I haven't got to go on a, to any bashing for a couple of years. So uh, if anybody else is out there is going, I'll see you there. So that's kind of it on Fay Ray. I just, you know, I wanted to say thank you guys again so much for for just giving me the opportunity, given the opportunity to uh, write in and recommend this. You know, I love this podcast. Love what you guys are doing. Love the idea about the non-genre work of some of our favorite horror stars. Uh, if you're going to do Vincent Price, I don't know if you've seen The Baron of Arizona. Really, really, really interesting film. One of his best non-genre roles. Um, even though it's not a, a horror film, he still is a pretty slimy guy in it. And it's it's based on a true story. Kind of throw that out there for recommendation. The Baron of Arizona. And Nothing But the Night. That's uh, that's an interesting choice. I just saw that for the first time recently. You know, it's, it's probably the, the Cushing Lee film that nobody talks about. Maybe rightfully so. I, I didn't hate it. It's definitely very different, though. I believe, I could be wrong on this, but I believe that... It was formed by, or it was uh, done by Christopher Lee's production company that he started. So yeah, I'll uh, let you guys talk about it, but I'm interested in hearing what you guys have to say. So anyway, uh, once again, guys, thanks. Keep up the great work. Uh, love, love, love the show, and uh, just uh, keep them coming. Thanks, guys. Bye. Well, thank you, Nicholas, for that fantastic voicemail. And you know, I was a, I was a little bit worried after we did the episode that I might have come across as a little too harsh against Fay Ray. And so uh, I'm, I'm glad you didn't chastise me accordingly. And I, and I think that's the cool thing is we can have difference of opinions. You know, uh, I may like a movie that somebody else doesn't, vice versa. But, you know, we don't we don't hold that against each other here in this great community we've created. The Clairvoyant was one that I think maybe after watching all the other Fay Ray films, maybe that's a film that we need to revisit because I know I think you mentioned you saw someone else said something that they liked that film. So I'm always up to revisiting the films. If, if someone says, well, hey, maybe you need to go back and see this or see this. And I'm like, you know what? I'll go back and revisit it at some point. But we did have fun doing it. Love to hear from your comments. Great to hear that you're going to Monster Bash. I think Jeff had something to, to say Yeah, about no, that. that's great. I, maybe you can give us a report. I've always wondered how the October Bash compares to the summer one. I know you mentioned you haven't been to a bash in a while. I don't know if you've been to the summer one, but maybe if you could give us a call and, and let us know how it was, how it was meeting Ray's daughter, anything, uh, we'd be happy <laughs> to play that. I'd love to hear about the Lost in Space reproduction that they've got going on there. They've got like the 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 console or whatever and, and their I guess some type of lost in space display that is going to be also picture opportunities to get your pictures taken with uh, Mark Goddard and uh, Marta Kristen who I've met Mark Goddard many many years ago he was one of my very first autographs back in '98 uh, and he was really really nice I've never met Marta Kristen and I'm I'm a, an old lost in space fan I'm anxious to hear how how that went as well and. Um, yeah, I'd love to hear the vibe that the October Bash has. We've never gone, and, and uh, I don't know, maybe maybe that we could stir it up one of these years and do an October one. This is the one that's at a different hotel, right? Yeah. So yeah. maybe also, I'm curious what people think about the, the different venue. I mean, they're going back to the regular one, for, so I don't know if it was just unavailable or if maybe they're trying to stir it up a little bit maybe the october crowd is different and it maybe it doesn't warrant the one hotel i don't know the reasons why they're doing them at different ones but uh, i would imagine that maybe october isn't as busy 
as this summer, but maybe not. I don't know. Give us a report. Let us know. And thanks again for calling in. If you'd like to call in like Nick did, you can pick up your mobile device and dial 616-649-2582. That's 616-649-CLUB. We would love to play your voicemail on the show. Absolutely. And, and I know uh, we stay in contact with, uh, with Jonathan, even though, you know, he's not here on the show, we know that he's keeping up with us as he can. He's got his hands full of baby Stella, but if you're not friends with him on Facebook, let me just tell you, he's doing it right with his daughter. When you get a picture and his daughter is wearing a Gamera shirt and she's got a stuffed Godzilla and a uh, what appeared to be a, uh, a, a dead Kermit the Frog in the background on a Saturday morning, yeah, Jonathan's doing a great. So special shout out to you, Jonathan. I know you're going to hear this sooner or later, and and uh, keep up the keep up the pictures. We love seeing them. And what about Steve Turek? What's his excuse? We haven't heard from him in a while, and he went to the Vincent Price uh, movie bash thing, correct? Yeah, you know, um, I, I've seen him, you know, on Facebook, but I didn't get a re- he didn't post a report about uh, about it. So Steve, if you're out there. Hey, reach out to us. Let us know and and let us know how that went. We'd love to hear from you. We miss having your calls. Okay, let's take a quick break and we'll come back and dive into these three movies. All right, that'll do. You're, uh... And look, you don't need to stand up every time you talk to me, all right? But, sir, it's a rule, sir. Whenever we speak to a master, we're meant to stand up first, sir. To show respect, sir. Just the same. Stay sitting from now on. All right? All of you. Sir. Sir. Good. Sir. Trimble. Yes, sir. Unman. Yes, sir. Wittering. Yes, sir. And Zygo. So I understand. He was ill, sir. With an unknown disease, sir. His father's taken him to Jamaica, sir. To recover, sir. And when he has, he'll come back, sir. And that's why his name's still on the list, sir. Yes, thank you. Jamaica's in the Caribbean, sir. Yes, Cuthbert, I do know that. Have you ever been there, sir? No, I haven't. No. Mr. Pelham went there once, sir. Twice. No, once. The other time was Trinidad. He went to Jamaica the time he went to Trinidad as well. No, he didn't. Oh, he went to Jamaica. All right, quiet. It's all very interesting, but it's not very much to the point. We've got history this period. Let's see if we can try and find out how far you've got. In this thriller set in a traditional boys' boarding school, John Ebony arrives to replace a master that has just been killed in a tragic accident. When his students claim to have killed him, Ebony becomes a victim of blackmail and fears that he may be next on their hit list. It's time for our first film, 1971's Unman, Wittering, and Zygo. I discovered this movie through another podcast that I used to listen to, and one that I think in the last year or so finally ended, uh, the Drunken Zombie podcast. I honestly can't remember how I got turned on to that show, but it was a, it was a unique format, group of people uh, with some crazy characters and, and just sitting around drinking and uh, talking about movies. And um, I used to call in and leave voicemails for them and... And they were they were giving me lots of interesting uh, and everybody on the show. I mean, they were giving out lots of uh, interesting suggestions on films. And 
when you hear a title like Unman Wintering in Zygo that just stuck with me. I was like, I've got to figure out and find this movie. It was a hard film to find. I remember I could not find a copy of it at the time on on eBay. I had to find it on iOffer. I think iOffer is still around, but iOffer used to be where you could go to find films that eBay wouldn't let people sell, like the film Tattoo with Bruce Dern and Maude Adams. You couldn't find that on eBay. I don't know if you can now or not, but at the time you couldn't. Or the movie Inchon because of copyright issues. So iOffer allowed you to do that, and that's where I was able to find a copy of it. It's, I guess, a little easier to find now. It's it's available on Amazon Prime to rent, so at least it's more out there. But it's never been given an official DVD home video release, and so if you find it's not even on YouTube at the moment. You know, this is one of those you're going to have to do a little bit of, of digging if you don't have Amazon Prime to, to find a copy of it. I found mine very easily. I borrowed my friend Richard's copy. Exactly. That's the way to do it. The copy was not bad. I mean, it's it, it basically it's a bootleg copy of a, of a film print. And so I don't know if the Amazon Prime, um, I didn't realize it was on Amazon Prime until after the fact. I don't know if their copy is any better. I'm willing to bet not. I've, I've seen some things on Amazon Prime that are also hard to find. And they look like a bootleg DVD copy on some of the stuff. Just because it's on Amazon Prime doesn't mean you're getting a remastered high-def version. I mean, some of the stuff they have on there is obscure, which is cool because it gets the it gets some of these films out there that you can't find anywhere else. It's probably going to be your easiest way to, to find this film, which it's it's you know it's been a while since I've seen it. Of the three films, I, I'm going to just come right out and say it. It's my favorite of the three films. It's Me the too. one that I think works the best. It was a little less horror than I remembered it being. It was a little more suspense thriller. For some reason, I was thinking there were more horror elements to it. But then upon revisiting it, I was like, nope, nope, this is more of a suspense thriller. What do you think of it? I enjoyed it mostly. It was just very unusual for me, its approach to the material. I mean, these students... Well, as we said in the synopsis, you know, a new master or teacher comes to this private school because the previous one was uh, in a horrible accident. Well, the kids claim that they killed him. And I guess what takes me about this is just their boldness in proclaiming that. And, you know, right off the bat, and I don't know if there's supposed to be mystery. Like, did they really? You know, why would they be saying that? But these kids are like, they're, I don't know, they're older than their age or something. I mean, they've got a betting scam going on and they blackmail the teacher to place bets for them. It's a whole little cottage industry they have going here at the private school. And I think, if, if, you know, that's probably if you're going to a, a boarding school, I would think you're going to grow up a lot quicker than you would if you were still living at home because... I mean, granted, you're in a boarding school, so, you know, the food is provided for you, and I'm sure there's a laundry service and all that stuff, but you are on your own, and, um, you know, you don't have, you know, mom and dad kind of, you know, coddling you or whatever, and you're being treated very much as as an adult, uh, which they didn't really stress as much in the film as... I think that they did in the audio version, which I'll talk about here in a little bit, and I, I'll do some comparisons, but I did listen to the 1984 uh, BBC drama, 
and it's very similar in some ways, but there are some some differences with it. But they made a point of talking about how these these were men. These these weren't boys. These were men. I mean, clearly they were still boys, but they're they're being referred to as as you know, Mister, and and they need to address the 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 teachers with respect. So yeah, these they're they're still young, but they're acting much more adult than probably someone would in a public school environment because they're being held to a higher standard. Hmm. Now, you mentioned the radio play. This is based on the radio play by Giles Cooper. Uh, it came out in 1958. In June of 65, it was adapted for TV as an episode. What I'm getting at here, and, and I really quickly checked Amazon.co.uk thinking, surely this movie was av- available there, and it's not available there either but this is a big thing in England apparently I mean this is part of the curriculum for the oh what what did it GCSE general something of secondary education and standard grade English coursework they frequently perform this play in schools and I that also just is curious to me I'm not sure what it is about this that makes it you know that what what's so educational about it? You had a kind of a theory earlier. Well, I think you know there is the the take a little bit on the the Lord of the Flies type feel to it. it it's it is very British in it in its uh, setting, which I'm sure has to be appealing automatically to those you know in, in Britain and the UK to to have something material that is very much rooted in in the boarding school setting, which. Yeah, you could do it in the, you know, you could do this in the, in the United States, but it would be vastly different, right? Because our versions of boarding schools here in the United States, you do get the the arrogant guys, I guess, you know, young men or whatever. I'm thinking of other movies I've seen with boarding schools, and they're always just, you know, smarmy and arrogant. And, and yeah, they could probably do something like this, but they wouldn't do it with the same measure of class, yeah. I guess. I think of school ties. I think of Dead Poet Society. I mean, it's ours are high drama. Yeah. Not anything that I can think of similar. And I think, and, and again, I, I think um, you get a feeling, whereas over in the UK, and, and if I'm wrong, if we have a UK listener who can correct me, I'm, I've never been there. I don't know. I'm basing everything I'm talking about on what I've seen in films, but... You know, boarding schools over there seemingly are much more part of the mainstream as opposed to we're here. Those who go to, to boarding schools in the States oftentimes are rich or entitled. And so there is a measure of arrogance that's that's going along with that. Whereas if you look at these boys in this classroom, it was a mix. You had some boys in that boarding school that you know, they were barely getting by. They weren't that that educated. They've been sent there to hopefully become more educated and become more like young men. But then you also had the others who were, of course, the main instigators in, in what was going on, who were clearly educated. They had goals. They talk about that in one scene. It's like, you know, their, their goal is to go on to the next level and, and continue their education while the rest of the guys in class, they just want to pass. You know, they don't really have a long-term goal, but the, the culprits or some of the individuals who are, are probably, you know, spearheading the incidents, they're educated. They've got plans. They, this is, 
yeah, they're, they're, everything they're doing, they're, there's a big, bigger picture. The gambling scheme is, is to make money, you know, but they, and they're keeping, they, they also keep a measure of control over, over the more rough house, the ruffians, the more uneducated, out of control kids in the class. When they start getting out of control and it annoys them, you know, if it's not serving their purpose to annoy the teacher, but if it's annoying them, they will turn around and shut it down very, very quickly. They're very much in control. They'll sit back and watch the chaos if it serves their purpose, but when it doesn't serve their purpose, they're shutting it down. That's a, a, a very different feel than what I typically see in boarding schools in the States. I think that's a very British institution, and that may be why this is so much more of the mainstream over there because of, of the story and the setting. Hmm. The teacher, Ebony, comes in, and I would say the crux of the movie really is his reaction to them and what is he going to do about it. What did you take... Uh, I don't know. I feel like this is a movie that, that needs multiple watchings, really, to get everything that's going on. It seems like you get a scratch of the surface on, on several things, but... And, and I think when you talk about the play, it sounds like it maybe was a little more in-depth with the relationship with his wife. Yeah. Because you really wonder, I mean, as it gets tougher and tougher for him at, at school, he's staying out and he's drinking and, you know, his wife's not real happy about that. So their relationship, there's something funky going on. He's in a tough spot. He can't really, you know, tattle on them uh, because, well, he thinks no one would believe him. Well, the headmaster doesn't care. He's already kind of dismissive anyway. And he doesn't... Ebony doesn't want to kind of rock the boat, really, right? This is his first teaching job, so he doesn't want to get a reputation as being a troublemaker, even though he's not the one causing anything. It, it, he fears it would be viewed that way. A subtle thing about his relationship with the wife, you know, he he says several times how this is... All he wants to do in the world is teach. You know, this is it. And... When he unloads on his wife and tells him her what's going on, she's like, oh, well, maybe this isn't the job for you then. So there's a little disconnect there where, you know, she's not very supportive, it doesn't seem like. No. And, and you're right about the multiple viewings, because this is my second viewing of it. And then listening to the audio drama is like my third time going through the story. And then I'm really starting to, to pick up the differences between the film and the audio and picked up on things that I didn't see the first time I watched the movie. There's a lot going on in this film that's kind of under the surface and things that can be interpreted one way or the other, much as as uh, when you and I were talking this morning, the homoeroticism that was in this film was something you didn't pick up on. I certainly didn't pick up on it the first go around, but when I watched this film this time, I... I I caught this the scene in particular that really kind of like, Ooh, what's going on? And then there was something earlier that I thought, okay, maybe there's something. And then as I started doing a little reading online, I picked up that now other people are seeing it as well. You know, he sees this young teacher coming into this classroom of kids that are trying to clearly control the situation. Right from the get-go when he's doing the roll call and he gets to Unman and Wittering and then Zygo and Zygo is absent. And the boys immediately... At that point, that's where they take control, right? Because they immediately start talking about Zygo. And it's just little things 
And that very first day, it's like they want the window open, and he says no. And then they go in this hole. It's like you know, well, the former teacher said we need air to breathe, and it's you know, it's stuffy in here, and you see, if we don't have air, we can't think properly. And they are immediately, it's like they're testing him, but it's like, it's like to the next level. They're not just testing him; they're like, you know, we're kind of testing the waters, but understand we're in control here. And when things get out of control that first day, and he immediately says, well. You know, because you're going to come back on Saturday. Well, that wouldn't be a good idea, sir. You know, <laughs> why wouldn't it be? Well, you know, and that's when they reveal the previous teacher, Pelham, I think it was. Mr. Pelham, you know, he said the same thing, sir. And, well, we had to kill him. And you wonder, is that a joke? But there's no one's laughing. And that sets the tone for the film. Is like these kids, these young men you know, are claiming to have done this stuff. And that's the question for that part of the film is like, are they being serious or is this just a psychological game? And then it becomes, starts to become more apparent when the wallet pops up and with the blood on it. And then there, you begin to, to realize it's like, no, something has happened here. And he's not really getting any help. His wife doesn't seem to really care in the teaching position their relationship is is certainly an odd one. He would rather go out and and drink with the other teacher, Carrie Farthingale. Meanwhile, this he's just learning more and more about these boys, and so that's where the the first hint of the homoeroticism comes in is where he's in the the locker room area, talking to one of the boys. Boy leaves. And he's just kind of standing there lingering, and another teacher's just kind of sitting there looking at him. It's it's an odd exchange between the two. It's kind of like, what are you doing here in this locker room with all the boys? You shouldn't you shouldn't be here. But then it's very much more in your face later on in the film when he's having a, a daydream fantasy in the morning or whatever. He's sitting in his chair and he's being chased in the woods, and the boys find him, and then they're ripping off his clothes and their hands are touching his chest and then they lift him up he's naked and they lift him up and then they're carrying him through the forest and then he then he wakens back up and he's in the room he looks out the window and then he immediately goes to his wife and begins to make love to his wife when they're ready to go to church and he immediately goes to that it's it's almost as if you know, he's having these these thoughts about the boys that then, of course, he, he needs to go to his wife and, and make love to his wife. And then, OK, now we're going to go to church. I didn't pick up on that the first time. And I don't understand I don't know if that was something intentional. That whole scene, I don't know, you know, was not played out that way in at all, really. In the the radio drama that I listened to, the '84 version of it, I couldn't find the '58 version. I, and I don't know. You said you didn't catch any of that when you were watching. Uh, no, so. I missed that. I missed that. I I I think I was just quite honestly, it just caught me off guard, and I was trying to figure out, you know, what was was happening. His, his approach to deal with the situation, really from beginning to end, is to identify the ringleader. Yes. He thinks somehow if he can figure out who that is, he can shut it all down. And that doesn't seem to me like it's going to be a very effective approach. I didn't think really, if he, even if he accomplished that, that, I don't know, I didn't, I didn't feel that would really solve everything. Well, he becomes obsessed with it. Even after 
he he gets the notice that he's not coming back the next next term because they're bringing in another teacher. At that point, he's just kind of like, well, I'm just going to let them do whatever. But then he still wants to know what's going on. He's doing all these different tactics, right? He's trying to strong arm him. That's not working. And so finally, he kind of pushes the boys to a point where, uh, you know, now they're they're going to to go after the wife. Because because uh, he says it's like you know you can't kill me then that that you know that'd be two in a row I was like oh, no we're not going to do that you know it's because you're married so they've immediately said they're going to target the wife you've got the scene which almost to me it was like I was getting a, a Mrs. Robinson feel when the the two boys go to the to the uh, the home and he's gone but his wife Sylvia is there. And their intent is to kill her or to attack her because they've got a knife. But yet then their hormones kick in, right? Because she's attractive. She's young. You know, she's wearing a short skirt. And she's offering them cigarettes. And, and I think she offers them a beer. And all of a sudden then their, their plan, they get flustered. They drop the knife. And then, then, of course, they decide to do the next thing. And that's well they're going to physically attack her you know, sexually assault her. And then, like, all the boys get in on that. And and that particular scene, that was almost a little uncomfortable to watch because yeah. I was like, okay, where are we going to go with this? I couldn't remember, honestly, from my first viewing so many years ago. It's like, how far did we go with this? And, you know, in the end, of course, she does get away, but she's she's been attacked. And then that's another case where I, I think that... that John Ebony is is it does a weird thing, right? Because he he he's upset that his wife has been attacked, but then the boys come knocking on his door saying, "Well, Wittering's gone. Wittering is a boy that they had been picking on in class. You know, they had been physically attacking him and calling him wet Wittering, and and uh, yet now they they need Ebony to help them find Wittering, and he chooses to help them." Again, I think, as you said, in this pursuit of trying to find the, the culprit and leaving his wife behind, who was just attacked, he's going to go off of the boys who had attacked his wife, and he's trying to help them. Most normal men aren't going to do that. And I just it, it's almost this weird connection he has with, with the boys in this movie that it's never in your face, and it's but it's, it is a weird, I don't know, it's a weird type type arrangement that they've got and and the ending of course plays out differently in the film versus the the radio drama so i i want to talk about that in a moment because it's the ending is implies things on the film that you and i were talking about yeah i want to say one thing real yeah. quick so i almost got more of a vibe rather than the homoerotic thing that the wife was sort of a tease a little bit kind of leading mm. them on absolutely yeah I, so i i think maybe that aspect overshadowed you know the other aspect for me and then i i think really this is probably gonna lead into what you're saying i hope i don't spoil anything but the whole the whole thing of this movie the roll call and the last three names you know that are the name of the movie unman wittering and zygo there's something about that that i don't think i'm getting like like you said zygo is absent and they explain why well I kept wondering through the whole movie, is he really, is he the mastermind? Is he lurking around somewhere causing all of this to happen? You know, that's not really resolved, I guess. But no, but, no. but they certainly even didn't try to make anything of that. So 
I don't know, how does that play into the, the ending that you were going to talk about? So, here's my take on how this film ends. An incident happens, I guess we're not going to give any, any major spoilers away, but something happens, and, well, the, it, the, the, the culprit is still really un, unclear. There's someone who comes forward and confesses, but there's still this question of really is he the one who did it or is he just confessing because he was the one you know that seemed to be get, getting picked on and I guess I'm giving some spoilers away if you've been playing along at home you know what I'm talking about anyway the final moments of the film you, so the boys when they're lifting they're they're carrying up the the body um, okay spoiler alert the body of Wittering the the headmaster is looking on and they just they they push him out of the way. There's a total disrespect, and he doesn't do anything, which is really, he doesn't do anything in the whole film. And then, so what do you hear? So you know that Ebony is leaving, um, and the final thing you hear is a new teacher's voice going over the list of boys, and it's all the same list, and you get to Unman here, you know, Wittering, absent, Zygo, absent, they're still listing Wittering, and now they're saying that Wittering is not dead. Again, spoiler alert, he's dead. They're calling him, they're saying absent. And just much like Zygo is absent, and the story they gave of Zygo is that he's off, you know, somewhere getting better or something. You know, he, he was sick or something and needed to get better. I don't know. I'm taking it that this has happened before, and the fact that they're just not even acknowledging that Wittering is 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 gone, that he's absent, made me wonder, you know, was Zygo potentially involved somehow in that first murder? And and maybe he's not alive and they're just listing him as absent. And now that Wittering has done the same, it's just it's happened to someone else. That that question, I guess, is I was like, how long has this been going on? Because clearly the truth came out. I mean, Wittering talks about his letter, but everyone comes back to school, and clearly the headmaster's not in control of things. So the the film version leaves, for me anyway, that's how I took it, is that there's there's this has possibly happened before and that these boys have gotten away with it. The audio version does several things that are different. If you And that's on YouTube. Listen to the 84 audio version. There's some big differences. For for starters, the wife is is played off as being older. She's definitely not doesn't sound as young, and she's a bit she's much more British. Whereas the 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 character of Sylvia in the movie seemed to be a lot more hip and and young, and the the radio drama plays her off as as a bit more you know stuffy, I guess. And the character of Farthingale, who is played off as being much younger. And a drinking buddy, well, he's a drinking buddy in the audio version, but he's much older. And also a bit more proper, I guess, of a teacher. The marriage between Sylvia and Ebony is, is much more combative in the, the drama, a radio drama, than it was the film. They don't do the attack on Sylvia, which would not have played well on radio. It would have, it would have been uncomfortable to listen to. But they do cover the, the boys meeting her at the house, but obviously it's not played off in the sexual undertones that the film does. It's a much more straightforward. The, the death of Wittering is played out very differently. An inspector actually comes to the school 
stating that Wittering has committed suicide. His body was found. There's a note, and they're trying to follow up on the death. And there's an implication that Mr. Ebony was partially responsible because he should have seen that there was things happening in the classroom, which is what Wittering implies in his letter. And the headmaster is just kind of trying to blow the whole thing off. Then there's a, a meeting between Ebony and Farthingale in the in the pub, which is the last scene, and where Ebony's still trying to figure out who the culprit is, and, and Farthingale says that really that he's the culprit. And it's implied that by by Ebony and his predecessor Pelham, by them coming in as the authoritative figures in the classroom, giving the instructions of what to do and what not to do, is basically the catalyst for the boys then kind of standing up against the the system, standing up against the man, and that because of what Ebony was doing, being a, an authoritative figure is what caused the boys to to commit the crime, you know, or much the case is Pelham before him, that's why it caused them to commit the crime that ultimately killed Pelham or the attack on Ebony's wife. That's much different than what's implied, I think, in the film version. And that I don't know which is more accurate to the source material. Well, so there's definitely some room for interpretation, I guess, on what exactly happened. And that's that's a sign of a good movie. I, you know, this, I do recommend people watch it. It's it's not slow. I mean, it, it's an hour, 42 minutes long. It, it moves along fine. I mean, it's not action-packed, but it, it keeps you unsettled. It, it's okay. I, I liked it all right. The audio version plays out, of, I think it's like 75 minutes long. So it, it shaves about uh, 30 minutes off the running time, 25, 30 minutes. And um, basically, though, a lot of the interchange is very similar. I'm wondering, the film must have, have done must have done a lot of, of, of straightforward adaptation from the original radio drama or, you know, the 84 radio drama may have sourced the film script. In either case, uh, um, th- there was a lot of similarities between the two. Certain things are left out, obviously, of the radio drama that were just almost filler in the film. So 75 minutes is actually a pretty good pace. And you know, either one I think is is uh, or both. See both, like I did. I always like to see two different versions and do a compare and contrast. I think that's always kind of fun, and I had fun doing that. I didn't plan on listening to it; it just kind of happened, and, and the end result was uh, I, I thought it was very interesting. Do you have any notes about the stars or anything? I I, I, I wonder do. what do you know about David Hemmings? <coughs> I I feel like that's supposed to be something that that he's in this, and I think he had a a stake in it or. or wanted it he had some something to do with it the movie being made but i don't really know what he's known for is he a familiar actor to you he had done a few things by this point one film in particular uh he was in barbarella uh he was also in eye of the devil he was in deep red he had done tv work as well and and, and some other film work so he was he was known. i think this was probably Roughly the peak of his career was around this time. But he did, uh, in the late 70s, he did... You're going to hear a lot of Sherlock Holmes reference in this episode. It's amazing how many people were in Sherlock Holmes in one way or another. I can't Um, wait to see how you tie Sherlock Holmes to Satan's School for Girls. uh, You know, for some reason I thought maybe I have a reference, but maybe not. Anyway, David Emmings was in Murder by Decree. He was actually in Gladiator. Uh, League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. So he did some genre-related films. Uh, but Barbarella 
was probably the biggest thing he was known for around this time. Hmm. So, all right. So the headmaster is played by Douglas Wilmer, who was in Jason and the Argonauts and Golden Voyages Sinbad. He was in Brides of Fu Manchu, The Vampire Lovers. Uh, he was an octopusy. And he was also uh, Sherlock Holmes in the 1965 version of Sherlock Holmes. There were two seasons of Sherlock Holmes, one with Peter Cushing and one with Douglas Wilmer, both of which I don't think either one of those seasons are complete, unfortunately. I know the Peter Cushing season is missing some of the episodes. So um, in any case, yeah, a lot of Sherlock Holmes references one way or the other. Carrie Farthingale was played by Tony Haygarth, and uh, lots of TV work. Probably the, the one big other genre-related thing he's known for, and I just saw this, was he played Renfield in the 79 version of Dracula, opposite Franklin Langella. Hmm. And did an amazing job in that. It was a different take on Renfield. I really like that 79 version of Dracula. Uh, and I know now why you wanted that music. That's a beautiful soundtrack. I had forgotten how good that soundtrack really, really was. I knew it, but then listening to it in this movie and seeing it, the movie's got flaws, but... Music is not one of them. Now, Carolyn Seymour played Sylvia Ebony, and she was very young. Uh, This is one of her earliest roles. A lot of sci-fi stuff going on here. Uh, She was in Space 1999. She was in Babylon 5. And numerous appearances on Star Trek. She was in uh, three different roles on Star Trek The Next Generation, including playing two different Romulans. And she was also in Star Trek Voyager. Um, I recognized her name right away and thought, is this the same actress? And sure enough, it was. So now all the, the boys and stuff, I, I was, I have to admit, I, I kept getting the actors and the names confused. So I didn't, I didn't do a good job trying to figure out if any of them went on to do anything big after this film, because some of the roles were, were relatively small, but their listing in IMDb is like all by their name and alphabetical name, which I thought was interesting. Giles Cooper, of course, wrote the 58 radio drama. He was also a writer on the 65 version of Sherlock Holmes. The screenplay was by Simon Raven, um, who did dialogue on another James Bond film, On Her Majesty's Secret Service. So there's multiple Bond references going on here. The director, John McKenzie, this was his second film, did lots of TV work. About the only other film that I saw was of note, and I recognized it from my days at the video store, was The Fourth Protocol in 87 with Michael Caine, which I saw back in, like, 88 or 89. So I don't remember it. I remember I enjoyed it. Um, and I think that's all I've got. You know, I I looked for the, the uh, 65 TV version. I couldn't find any references to it anywhere. Chances are it is probably lost along with a lot of other British television. I I do want to note one thing, too. The cinematography didn't seem that interesting to me. There was a thing at the first, which was kind of a point-of-view shot and some funky stuff with the camera. I didn't think much about it. But I see now that Jeffrey Unsworth was the cinematographer, and he was a brilliant cinematographer. 2001 A Space Odyssey, Superman the Movie. That name is very familiar to me, and that's interesting that he was involved in this. So I think you're looking at the, the cast and crew. They, they obviously did a lot of other stuff. Um, sometimes with these films, they, you know, you don't see them do much of anything. But this guy, you got a good cast. Uh, I like the setting of the film. This is a fun film. My favorite of the three by far. Again, less horror than I remember it being. Uh, but if you're looking for a good suspense thriller 
with uh, a bunch of bad school kids. Um, this is, I think, this is a good one. I think it's worth uh, seeking out. Yep, I do too. Anything else? That's what I got. All right then, we'll be right back with our next movie. Faces of innocence, happy and carefree, but beneath the sound of children singing, there is a hum of evil. Filling their days with the terror of the night. A coach load of children. I can't believe that. The children were incidental. What? They were accompanied by three illustrious and very rich trustees of the Van Traylon Trust. The nature of the killing points to one thing. Ritual murder. I want you to tell me about the fire. No. Don't talk about it, please. Try to remember. What happened? It was so cool at first, but the fire came faster and faster. give my life for it. But if you're lying to me, if this is some kind of trick... The Masters of Suspense, Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing, unravel a web of mystery that reaches out from the confines of a hospital to a bleak island off the coast of Scotland. Is Mary Valley well protected? Colonel Bingham has made adequate security arrangements. But he can't protect her from the nightmares in her mind. Inspector? You will organize local volunteers for a search. I want every inch of this island searched before nightfall. Is it a mother's love or a thirst for revenge that drives her to this island? To be hunted like an animal. While the children play, disaster chills the day. and the night explodes with danger. Wealthy trustees of the Van Tralen Fund have been dying one by one in what appears to be a series of random suicides. Police officer Colonel Bingham and pathologist Sir Mark Ashley investigate when the young girl who survives a bus crash has memories of a fire that she never actually experienced. Richard, what's your history with Nothing But The Night? I think we both had seen it and even having seen it once thought it was a pretty decent movie. Second viewing, not so much. What uh, happened? I remember watching this on not too long ago. I mean, as far as like Cushing Lee films, this is one of the the last ones I think that I saw for them. You know, as far as like most recent, um, my first time viewing was probably ten years ago on this film, and it was 
I think running on Cinemax during the day. I remember watching it like on a Tuesday, you know, morning or something. It was just a weird time, and I'm like, what is this? And I enjoyed it the first go around, and I think more so because I, I the ending is is probably the best part of the film, even though it doesn't make any sense. Um, and that's what sticks with me. And I and and it made the rest of the film seemingly a lot better than ultimately it was. With this this particular viewing, I think is my third time seeing it, and I have to admit now I was probably watching it with a bit more of a critical eye, and I realized, yeah, there's a reason. As Nicholas Hatcher said, that's a you know a film that nobody talks about, and probably with good reason. Yes, there's a reason why nobody talks about it. It's an interesting uh, interesting film that should have been a lot more than what it was, and ultimately. There's a lot of nonsense that goes on in this film, and a lot of um, I, <laughs> I have to admit, I when we were doing our recording, and I was looking at your notes because I was recording the synopsis that we do before these movies. I saw one of your notes in this film. I just I was scanning, and I just saw like one of the most inept uh, search parties. search parties. Yes, because uh, that was something that I just it stuck out. I had never really noticed before. I was like. How have they not found her as they're looking for her? And that's where I really started thinking. It's like, okay, there's a lot in this movie that I think I glossed over in previous viewings. And now seeing it with a bit more of a critical eye. Yeah. As Nicholas Hatcher said, there's a reason people don't talk about this one. This one, folks, was a lot rougher than I remembered. Well, so it's 90 minutes long. It is... 71 minutes into the movie before there's any hint of what's really going on. There's a lot of red herrings, but it when it arrives, it's so out of the left field. There's no explanations given. There's, and it's like the buildup is long and slow, and sure, they're solving a mystery and a slow burn is great, but it's like none of that mattered. See, and this was another film that I, for some reason... I, I was thinking it was more horror-related. Really, it's more sci-fi. And I don't know, maybe it was the, the whole Wicker Man-like ending and the, the burning and stuff. I'm like, to me, all of a sudden, my mind said, okay, you've watched a horrible film. We're going to reprogram your memory, and you're going to remember it like this way. Because it was not as I remembered it. And upon viewing it, I'm like, yeah, this this movie takes... I mean, yes, it's 90 minutes long. It feels like 90 minutes it's, it goes on and on and on without really going anywhere and and the character of Anna is 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 running for this film and is escaping and is surviving on the run I mean and I'm sorry she does not look like she's the quickest of, of gals and she's got leg problems or ankle or something as she's hobbling through half of it and like I mean you've got men and dogs and helicopters and I'm like She's not a ninja. How can they not have caught her? Oh my gosh! This movie start. It, the opening scene is good, right? You've got these school children singing this really kind of weird, creepy song in the school bus. Well, but that there's even before that. I think the the murders of the different trustees. Yes, yes, and, and that sort of has a giallo feel because the murderer is wearing black leather gloves. Yeah, 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 and these. I think there's three murders. They get knocked off in unusual ways, and that's like, oh, this this is going to be interesting. That, now that we get to your part. Yeah, then you got the school bus, right? But these kids are, are, I think, a little out of control on the school bus. 
and the one girl's bouncing up in front and she's they're all singing this song and I, if I was the bus driver, I'd been yelling at them all to sit down because they're like annoying as heck. And then you get the fire on the bus, and the and all of a sudden it's just it's, it's a good start. And then it it goes into this almost like a, a a murder mystery procedural process of trying to find what's the the cover up and and what's going on at this school. And you know, okay, you got to think of the time period, early seventies. Everything going on at a school at that point was was some type of demonic cult worship thing going on. There was so many movies around that time period. Maybe that's why my memories were thinking that it was much more horrific than it really was. Well, I don't even think at that point they were wondering what's going on at the school. They're trying to figure out the girl, the girl, yeah, why the girl. she has these memories that that didn't ever happen to her. And you know, her mom is literally a prostitute and a convict she's out of jail uh and wants to reunite with her daughter so they play her up as being involved somehow she's the big big old red herring but you know that again yes the girl eventually goes back to school but i don't even think before that point there's they're suspicious of the that's school true. about it yeah that is true yeah. i mean yeah they should have been that would have tied it through a little yeah. more you've got the, the the powerhouse duo of christopher lee and peter cushing and they are good together on on screen, as 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 Derek always says. You know, Peter Cushing can can always make a movie better, but Peter Cushing's character of Sir Mark Ashley, boy, you know, he's he's a little slow on the draw in this film to to think that there's there's maybe something going on to the point where, I mean, he he has a, a direct conflict with Doctor Haynes at the beginning of the film. And and almost is what he's almost angered or incensed or something that Haynes is wanting to pursue this and and thinks just let the girl go is you know why are we trying to to do anything here and Doctor Haynes is the one who says ah there's something that's not happening not clicking right here it's not Cushing's character is is very much of the belief that we just need to let this all all just go away before he finally gets into the you know investigative mode beginning of the film, he's very standoffish, I think. Yeah, I, I made a note that Cushing and Lee are in this great, but they're not great. I really think even Cushing, I don't know, neither one's... Cushing had one good line I made note of that, you know, usually they, they talk about the physical business that he performs and then his lines, and there's just not much of that here. And, and I'm not blaming him. But, I mean, it is questionable as to why he didn't... I don't want to say he's walking through the role, but, I mean, Christopher Lee has... He does have two modes in his films, right? He has those where he's just... He's all gusto, going for it, chewing up the scenery, whatever. He's just loving the moment. And then there's other films where it does kind of feel like he's just filling a role. Because Christopher Lee did a lot of films. Very prolific. We tend to forget that because he did a lot of work, some of his work, he's just he's just kind of there, doing a good job, but it's it, some of his roles do pale in comparison to some of his other, other, other roles. And this is one that, it's his production company. I mean, it's Charlemagne Productions, the one and only film that they did, uh, or Charlemagne Films. Um, this was supposed to be the start of, of, of thing, big things to come. I mean, he, he optioned three books by John Blackburn 
This one, Nothing But the Night, uh, Portrait of Barbara and Bury Him Darkly. And Portrait of Barbara and Bury Him Darkly were envisioned to be to be sequels. And, and Lee was going to play the part of Colonel Bingham, and it was going to be uh, a series of films. They also optioned some of Dennis Wheatley's books. But ultimately, after this film, and I believe it's because they lost money on this film, then nothing ever happened. One and only thing from Charlemagne Films, eventually the Dennis Wheatley book To the Devil a Daughter was made by Hammer. Their, what, next to last film that they made uh, in their original run. So this is his baby. You would think that he'd want to really knock it out of the park, and it didn't seem to me like he was giving that type of performance, that he was that invested in the film. It, it, it felt like he was just another another film that he was hired for rather than one that he was actually very personally and financially invested in. I thought he was better than Cushing, though. I didn't re- remember our old game of <clears throat> Cushing and Lee, who was the better actor in different movies or whatever. Yeah. I, I think Lee has the advantage in this one by a, a thread. I would, agree, I would agree with you there, yeah. yeah. Which, again, it's kind of where I was saying Cushing's part in this film is that he's just... It's not what it's not one of his better roles. He's still good because he's Cushing, but you're not really cheering for him. He's not a bad guy in, in the beginning part of the film. And honestly, as the film goes along, I still don't really feel like he's, you know, doing everything in his power. Well, it's just it's it's weird. I mean, he they're investigating like we said everything goes along. But then, when they figure it out, man, he figures it out, and it's nonstop through the end, and he all of a sudden has all the answers and wants to do a yeah. biopsy of this and that. And But up to that point, he didn't want anything right. to do with it. No, no. And I guess maybe that's a more of a, a reflection, again, not knowing the source material, that might be a reflection on the screenplay by Brian Hales. Um, now... I mean, I know Brian Hale's work because he did lots of work on Doctor Who. So I know from a script editor or script writer perspective, he can do good work. Um, he created one of the iconic Doctor Who monsters of the 1960s, the Ice Warriors. And he wrote, well, he wrote their, I'm trying to think, how many stories did he write? He wrote six stories on Doctor Who four of which had the, the Ice Warriors in them. The Ice Warriors, Seeds of Death, the Curse of Peladon and the Monster of Peladon, which, aside from uh, the Monster of Peladon, the, the first those first three stories are considered classics uh, in Doctor Who. He does good work on that regard, so I don't know. Maybe it was the source material. Maybe it was that he was just adapting the story as written by John Blackburn, and maybe it was just a film that maybe should not have been adapted. Yeah, I really don't know where to blame. I, I feel like there is a story somewhere, and, and I'd like to know what it is. I mean, there's good people involved. I, I, I made some notes of the Hammer connections. There are quite a few people from Hammer involved in this. Anthony Nelson Keyes, the other producer with Lee, he has a long history with Hammer, all the way back from Curse of Frankenstein up through Frankenstein Must Be Destroyed. Director of photography, Kenneth Talbot. He did a couple Hammer films, Countess Dracula, Hands of the Ripper, Makeup, Eddie Knight. Malcolm Williamson, the composer, did Brides of Dracula, Crescendo, Horror, Frankenstein. I will say, though, the music in this drove me crazy. Did you notice 
the the underlying theme that ever, all the music was a variation of. No. Itsy Bitsy Spider. Wow, how did I now, pick up on that? I, maybe, I don't think it could have been just me, because first I heard it and I thought, oh, that's coincidental. From that moment on, I heard it in every bit of music being played. It, it really did... I, I'm certain that's what it was. See, this would be where normally I would say, oh, darn, I've got to go back and rewatch the film. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, like Derek does on Monster Kid Radio. But I don't know that I want to go back and watch this one right away to see that. I didn't pick up on that. Yeah, I did. It reminds me a little bit of Scream and Scream Again, just because it's that's kind of how biz- bizarre mm. it ends up being. And you yeah. think you're watching one movie and then it turns out you're not. I think Scream and Scream Again is better than this, but it's the same type of sort of just bizarre story and execution of the story. Yeah, I mean, so we, you know, again, don't want to give spoilers away, but the big reveal at the end of the movie, it, it, there's no explanation, really. Well, there is, but it, it comes just suddenly. I mean... The, the, the transference... Well, you're right. They don't say how it happened or well, when it happened. Well, that's what I was talking about, okay. the transference yeah. of, of... Yes, they explain that, it, you know, it's the, the old... The, the trustees or whatever now living in the and the, the young kids. There's no explanation as to, to how they even made that happen. None. I mean, and you're like, okay, interesting idea. I, you've spent 70 minutes getting up to this, and now we're wrapping everything up. It's... It's like they're wrapping everything up so quickly. It's like, okay, you've got this bonfire and, and you're you know going to lift bodies up and you're burning people and, and you're the whole thing where they capture Colonel Bingham and they're doing the tug of war. I mean, that's, that's terrifying. I, I like the way that played out. You've got this fire, these kids, they're all dressed like adults. Here comes Cushing of the helicopter overhead. It's a dramatic scene. It's by far the best oh, thing yeah, about the movie. Oh, yeah, the climax is really good. And the very end, I mean, is just terrible. And we, we are going to spoil this. I'm I'm sorry. We, we said Wittering, you know, did it in the yes. previous one. We're going to spoil this. He did? No. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, backing up just for a sec. So, yeah, Peter Cushing, uh, he said, The elderly have used their power and wealth to try and achieve immortality. By transplanting the nucleus of their adult knowledge, experience, and personality into the minds of the children. My note was, that's an awfully big jump. Where are the clues to that that tell you that is what has <coughs> happened? There isn't. There, there are no clues. Yeah, it's just a jump. It's a huge jump. I mean, you've got this great climatic scene, but I, the, the explanation as to how all this transference happened and... You know what happened to their so they can make a reference. I think well that you know the kids aren't there anymore. Like well, what happened to them? You know they just buried mentally. You know is there a way to bring them back? Yeah, that's there's just I don't know. It's like they've spent all this time again the longest chase scene ever. You know and not again the character of Anna. I, yeah, I there's so much time was spent on other stuff and and the climax felt very very rushed and so I don't know where that that falls is that on the original source material is that on the screenplay is that was that a choice of the director i i I don't know where the fault was and like you said there's not much written about this film i haven't been able to find anyway and it seems like generally speaking most people involved don't really seem to talk about it because everyone acknowledges yeah we didn't 
we didn't do good by this one, but why? So what, what, where in the, the process of making this film did this film fall apart? Was it a bad idea from the beginning or was it during the course of production? The only thing I could find is that John Blackburn was not happy with the casting of Diana Doors as Anna. Um, in my research, I found that at one time, Diana Doors was a sexy siren uh, in, in Hammer. But those days were long gone because she was not that in this movie whatsoever. Although this, she, she did several films around this time period. Theater of Blood in 73, which now I'll be watching that here in the next month. And I'm curious to see what part she plays in that. She was also in From Beyond the Grave. So she had a resurgence at this point of her career, but her sexy siren days are long gone. And again, according to John Blackburn, she was not cast properly. So then that begs to, to say maybe the source material was good. Maybe the production of the film is where everything got off track. I don't know. I, here, listen to this uh, theory and, uh, and the analogy I make here. I imagine the making of this movie was like one of our podcasts. We start out, and Jeff makes the mistake of asking, how are you, Richard? And we just start <laughs> chatting. And then we talk about our first movie, and we go on and on. And we get to our third movie, and we look at the clock, and we're like, we got to finish this thing. So we rush through new business and all of that, and the ending, you know, proportionally, the, the pacing, that, that's sort of what the movie's like. It's like, and of course, they don't do it chronologically, but it's like they get to a certain point, and they're like, all right, come on, we got to get done. That's like you've described about every episode of Star Trek Voyager. I, that's my my biggest thing about that series is that I would always... I mean, and this happened to me legitimately when that was on television. I was always recording it, so I, I could step away from it knowing that I would watch it again on VHS later if I missed something. But if you left in the last, you know, moments of the episode, the last five minutes, it's like... The ship's on fire. The crew has an incurable disease. Uh, you know, they're surrounded by 30 Klingon ships. I get up. I go to the bathroom. I come back. The ship's been repaired. Everyone's cured. The sun is, you know, setting off in the sunset. And that's it. And I'm like, so what happened in that one-minute time frame, maybe two, to... I mean, the Voyager did that. And a lot of other TV shows do that a lot of times where they... They spend so much time building to to the climax, and then they rush through. You, you may have, have hit the nail on the head in this movie. Maybe it was, you know, in the course of production, maybe there was somebody not calling the shots properly and realized we've, we've got to stick with a 90-minute time frame. You know, we've got to wrap this thing up. And they didn't have a good explanation to... Again, I'd love to know the source material. Does the source material give a better explanation to the transference of of souls and and the nucleus? Is there any explanation of that in the book? And and if so, then why did they totally ignore it in the movie? Was it simply because they ran out of time, or they just wanted to dumb it down for the movie audience? And if that's the case, then that was that's a huge mistake because it ultimately. Is, is a big negative for the film that there's just when you get to that big climactic moment the explanation isn't isn't a good payoff at all I don't think I was just thinking I wonder if you could watch the last 20 minutes 
really the way as abrupt and as different it is, it's almost like a standalone little short film. I mean, I don't know how much you'd miss. You'd miss some of the backstory about the girl, but really not much else at all. You'd, you'd miss the hour-long police chasing <laughs> and scenes of, of Anna hiding out in the bush and eating an apple as helicopters and dogs are like, yeah, you'd miss all of that. That's true. That's yeah, I was going to say, yeah, how could you miss that? Here's some, here's some tidbits about the cast. Colonel, okay, Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing, we don't really need to go into detail, other than I thought this was fun. These are movies that, that both Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing did in the very same year, 1973. Of course, they both did The Creeping Flesh together, which I recall being a much better film. Oh my gosh, yes. Christopher Lee did a television film called Poor Devil. Never heard of it. The Satanic Rites of Dracula, The Wicker Man, and Three Musketeers. Peter Cushing did, besides The Creeping Flesh, he also did Satanic Rites of Dracula, and now The Screaming Starts. Diana Doors, and we mentioned, uh, of course, her, and uh, as, as Anna, the mom. You've got uh, Georgia Brown as Joan Foster. Again, interesting things that she did here that ties into other things we just were talking about. She was in a 1968 televised uh, series version of Sherlock Holmes. She was also in a 1965 Sherlock Holmes film called A Study in Terror, and she was also in, I think it's 76, Sherlock Holmes film called The 7% Solution. She was in a uh, 70s horror anthology called The Tales That Witness Madness. And, yep, she's got a Star Trek reference. She plays the character of Helena Roshenko, the human, uh, uh, not stepmother, foster mother of uh, the Klingon Wharf in Star Trek The Next Generation. Played her in two episodes. Keith Barron as Dr. Haynes, who has an untimely demise earlier on in the film, did lots of television work. He, too, was in uh, the in a 93 episode of Sherlock Holmes, the series starring Jeremy Brett, and he was also in Doctor Who. He was in the 1980s episode Enlightenment with the fifth Doctor, Peter Davison. And uh, the young girl, Mary Valley, played by Gwyneth Strong, whose name sounds familiar, and I feel like I've maybe seen her and stuff. I didn't recognize anything that she did. She's done lots of TV work. And this was the theatrical debut of Michael Gambon. He played the character of Inspector Grant, but fans will know him more so for his role as Dumbledore in the last six Harry Potter films. He was also in a uh, Peter Cushing... The Peter Cushing, he did The Beast Must Die, didn't he? Mm -hmm. Yes. They were in that together. He was also in uh, an episode of Doctor Who in 2010, A Christmas Carol, opposite, I believe, the 11th Doctor Matt Smith. You mentioned the director, Peter says. I did not, and I I should have because that's another Hammer connection. Yeah, lots of stuff that he did. He, too, he directed lots of TV. He directed uh, episodes of the 65 Sherlock Holmes series. Taste the Blood of Dracula, Countess Dracula, Hands of the Ripper. He did three episodes of The Hammer House of Horror, which you've been covering for your blog. He directed Christopher Lee uh, in Sherlock Holmes and the Leading Lady in 1991. He directed The Stone Tape, which is a fun uh, film from the 70s. Have you ever seen that? Mm-mm. That's a good one. It's a British made-for-TV ghost story, I guess. is an interesting thing. It's a good flick. And... Uh, how this fits in with the others, I don't know. Again, a story like, 
I want to know the details of how he directed Pia Zadora in The Lonely Lady in 1983. How did he stumble upon that? I have directed Sherlock Holmes and Dracula and Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing and Pia Zadora. I don't know. Bizarre. Uh, that I want to know more about that story as well. The only other thing I have is that this was available on DVD. Apparently the DVD has gone out of print. Amazon is selling it for like $35. Not worth $35 in my opinion. I think you can shop around and probably find it used for a cheaper price in my opinion. Um, you can also find it on Amazon Prime. So if you have Amazon Prime, I think you can probably... I'm pretty sure I watched it this time on YouTube. Oh, well, my, I didn't check YouTube. So. Where did you watch it? Uh, I have a DVD. Oh, you do? I do, yeah. Mm-hmm. Nice. You know, I think this is where I'm thinking there was maybe an extra on the DVD. Oh, gosh. And I don't quote me on this, folks, but I believe that Peter Sazdy has... I think he directed Peter Cushing in a 1960s made-for-British-TV science fiction series uh, or movie or miniseries. And I'm totally drawing a blank now on the name. I'll find the title for you. If, if only you know we had the ability to look something up. Well, but in any case, and we do, and that's not apparently helping. Um, I'll, I know I'll find it, I'll, and I'll mention it here in a second. But I know that again, it's lost. We can't find it, and it's like ugh, one of those things with just irritating. And maybe it'll pop up like occasionally lost Doctor Who episodes do. But um, in any case, that's what I've got on on nothing but the night. Do you have anything else? Nope. Let's take a break then. Sounds good. I, I do we recommend this? Oh. Yeah, well, yeah, you got to recommend it, Cushing and Lee, but I'm not saying you'll enjoy it. Put it at the bottom of your list as you're working your way through the films of Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee, both together and individually. This would not be at the top of the list. Put it towards the bottom of the list. Don't spend $35 on the DVD. You can get it cheaper. Again, it's Amazon Prime. Go on that. Go out there now and check it out. And from time to time, it's also run on Comet TV, I believe. Yeah, yeah. So you can find it, um, hopefully free, and, and maybe you'll find something in it that we don't. But again, there's a reason this doesn't get talked a lot about. And uh, I guess we, we just rediscovered that reason while watching it. <laughs> yep. Well, maybe the next one will be better. Or not. My sister did not commit suicide. She had no reason to kill herself. We went to some of the other classmates at the academy and the headmistress. No one could give us any further information. I'm going there. Well, you won't find out anything, nothing. This academy has its own tradition. It has been here in this very place for over 300 years. Some robbers break under the pressure sooner or later, but without exception. All are driven to various forms of psychotic behavior. Come on, Roberta, you can't believe they all committed suicide. Three girls from the same school? No, they were murdered. Or at least driven to do what they did. Refusing to believe she committed suicide, Elizabeth travels to Massachusetts to search for clues surrounding the death of her sister, Martha. Masquerading as a student at the Salem Academy for Women, She investigates strange goings-on with the help of a troubled young woman who painted Martha's portrait.
Okay, through the power of the internet, I got the answer to thy ramblings. The uh, the lost work uh, of Peter Cushing. So it's a 1964 British series called Story Parade. It's one of those anthology shows. The episode was called The Caves of Steel. It's based on a book by Isaac Asimov, which I have. And Peter Cushing in that plays detective, or I should say human detective, Elijah Bailey, I believe is how it's pronounced. Yeah, it's it's one of those infamous lost BBC shows that Peter Cushing in his prime doing an Isaac Asimov science fiction story and we don't have it. And that's irritating. Nonetheless, that was something that I learned from uh, doing my research for Nothing But The Night. That might have very well have been the most... <laughs> the I was going to say, something good did come yeah, out Yeah, something of good it. did come out of that, absolutely. Okay, so we're still in 1973, and I believe we did 71 and 73 in previous episodes of like what was going on in the world, so stirring it up this time, and I wanted to take a look at who died and who was born in 1973 and not necessarily just actors but you know kind of across the board i'll start off with the better part i guess i should say of who died because these are a lot of legendary people uh, a lot of these names that I, I recognized so we lost these people in 1973 bruce lee passed away artist the legendary artist pablo picasso uh, Lyndon B. Johnson died in 73. I didn't realize he died so short after he left office. I was, I was young, so I didn't really connect with that. Another uh, legendary author, J.R.R. Tolkien. We have uh, some musicians. Bobby Darin, who uh, Mac the Knife, I believe, was his biggest hit. Uh, Jim Croce died in 73. Betty Grable, uh, of course, uh, pinup gal from the 1940s. And this is a, a horror legend of, of major magnitude. Lon Chaney Jr. passed away in 73. Irene Ryan, who played Granny on the Beverly Hillbillies. I didn't realize that she passed away at that. She was a lot younger than she appeared. I don't have the age in which she passed, but she wasn't that old. Hmm. But Beverly Hillbillies had just ended around that time, so she didn't live too much longer after that show passed or ended. Another legendary director, John Ford, and actor Edward G. Robinson. I'm sure we will mention this again. We've talked about maybe doing a Charlton Heston episode down the road. That was the year that Soylent Green came out, and that was his last film. Um, and in fact, he was, I believe, dying of cancer. And when he, he has to film his death scene in that movie, everyone, the cast and crew, they said it was very emotional because... They knew that in reality he was also also dying in real life. So who was born in 1973? Well, you know what? There's a lot of names I didn't know. I'm an old fart and didn't know <laughs> some of these people, but some of them I did. And probably the, the closest to genre we have is Andrew Lincoln was born in 73. He plays uh, Rick Grimes on The Walking Dead. We have Seth MacFarlane from uh, Family Guy and, of course, now the captain on The Orville. We have Jim Parsons, a.k.a. Sheldon from The Big Bang Theory. James Marsden, he did what? Oh, lots of stuff. You'd know him. He was in Westworld. Neil Patrick Harris. How about Kate Beckinsale? Anyone? Kate Beckinsale? Know that name? Okay. You? I do. I do okay, know. Good. Yes, I do. Hey, I come do. Come on. Anyway, uh, that was something a little fun, a little different since we had done these. We're going we're gonna to hit that. We're going to hit some of these years where I've already done, and so... I'm going to have to try to stir it up every once in a while. So how does stir it up? Wouldn't it be interesting, though, if we did it again and, like, something had changed and it's because there had been a change in the timeline and 
sent a separate kind of like the I, I rediscovered the little the thing where you search for Thanos on Google and then you click on the hand and he and it snaps and half of the things disappear. Uh, have you done that? Uh-uh. So it's it's yeah it's where you do a search for for Thanos on Google and it pulls up all these results and then there's this glove on the right hand side you click it and the fingers snap. And then half the things dissolve, and they like they literally disappear, like in the Avengers. And so your your search and it changes the search results. It like cuts it in half. Huh. So it's hilarious. So and then you click it and it comes back. In any case, 1973. I'm sure scores of people were you know flocking into the theaters over in the UK to see nothing but the night. Here in the states, everyone was flocking around their television. If one flocks around a TV. To uh, watch made-for-television films, which mid to early to mid seventies, that was that was the thing, right? NBC did it a little less so, but ABC and CBS, I used to remember, they did a lot of made-for-television films, and they made some good stuff. Uh, Salem's Lot was made for TV. ABC, they did a lot of of, um, and especially in the early seventies and and on in early to mid seventies, a lot of uh, ninety-minute movies. Uh, the the suspense theater I think is what they used to call it, and of course they factor out to be like a seventy five minute movie without commercials. Now there was some good stuff, and and you suggested that could be an interesting theme for a future episode, and I think there would be more than enough that we could cover. One of my all time favorites, Where Have All the People Gone, with Peter Graves. Have you seen that? I don't recall if I have or not. That's a good one. They're basically comet something happens to sunspots or something, and People disappear. They they turn to dust and turn to powder, and so it's it was the intended as a pilot for a series where they would have him and his kids would have been going basically searching out for the remnants of humanity. It's kind of like post apocalyptic, but from the aspect that you know everyone just kind of disappear. They you know the people just kind of turn to dust. Guys, there's so many others. Everything you said is correct. However, I'm going to be a little more specific that Satan's School for Girls was actually part of the ABC movie of the week. That is a series, I guess. They say it ran for six seasons from 69 to 75. Unless you went through it, it's really hard to explain how really impactful that was. I mean, there were television series that came out of movies that appeared on the movie of the week. Six Million Dollar Man. Yes. Duel, Steven Spielberg directed. That was a movie of the week. The Night Stalker. Duel later got released cinematically, so that's how good that movie is. And ABC in particular had this knack of of doing the, the thrillers, the scary, the supernatural movies. And I don't know... I don't know if it was a regular thing or if just every so often, but Man, I remember those as a kid, and the commercials were terrific, and it made you want to see them. They were so suspenseful looking, and then you saw the actual movie. <laughs> now, my now, and I'm you know, there's nothing wrong with Satan's School for Girls. It's a '70s TV movie. There is nothing terrifying or horrifying about it. It's perfectly fine. But I wonder, at that time, and it was a big hit, I know, was it, I guess now the story is just so routine. I mean, you probably could not even read the synopsis and you know what's going to happen, you know. She goes to the boarding school to to uh, investigate her sister's death and, you know, basically there's a Satan-worshipping group that's there. I mean, it's... 
obvious. There's no mystery really about it. But I'm saying that's looking at it now. Do you think then it was like something? I think it was. So you got to think back. Things were a lot simpler. TV shows were simply uh, much more black and white, much more paint by numbers back then. And, you know, there's something to be said about that. I mean, most shows, they weren't serialized formats, right? It was the episode of the week and, you know, who was the, who you know, crime dramas, who was the bad guys. Like, you, you didn't, there was no sugarcoating it. There was no suspense. You knew who, the, who did it. Nowadays, television audiences, they want something much more complicated. But there's a certain charm that, that, that's missing. And, and for the networks, of course, think back. This is before the days of cable TV. Earliest cable television. I mean, yeah, there was some cable TV in the early 70s, but it was in outlying areas. And it was so you could get UHF stations from two hours away or something if you lived in, an, in a rural area. Um, some of the major cities had, you know, li- and limited cable offerings in, in the early 70s. Regular cable really didn't click in until the late 70s, circa 1980, when you started getting networks like MTV and that kind of stuff. Uh, but even then, that's so much more simpler than what we have now. Network television was it. ABC, NBC, CBS. There was no Fox. PBS was always a fourth option, you know. But they were producing nature shows and that kind of stuff. Any type of dramas they were playing was imported from from the BBC. You didn't have any other any other source for for entertainment as far as there were there was there's no streaming services. There's no TNT or TBS, you know, or AMC. None of that. And so that gave the networks they had money to work with and to create these movies. And, and to make their own movies, it's like you'd never think about that now. I mean, anything that the networks do now, it's like, uh, you know, if they do, uh, they don't do movies. They, they don't, if they do something, maybe it's a limited run series or something with the intent of maybe making it last longer. You just, you don't have a, a two-hour movie being produced by any of the networks. And they don't show them anymore either. Back then... You could, you know, that's where we saw theatrical films as well. If you if you saw a movie that you loved in, in the theater, your way to watch it again was to you'd first catch it as the Sunday night movie. You know, that was where you could find the James Bond movies. That so yeah, that that was a very it was a simpler time, but a lot of what they were producing was amazing. I think the thing we can say about this, it, I mean, there were a lot of good movies that hold up today that came out of this time period. We mentioned Duel, Night Stalker, Trilogy of Terror, for crying out loud. This one doesn't hold up like those do. Not all of them do. I mean, I mean uh, no, but the ones I mentioned, I think you. Oh, agree. oh, absolutely, yeah. absolutely, yeah. I mean, for every Trilogy of Terror, you know, we had four or five that weren't. I mean, Sven Gulli played Ants earlier this year and I what was it The Deadly Cargo folks those weren't good movies The Deadly Cargo was maybe a tad better than Ants but a lot of these made for TV movies they were cheaply made but you did have you know the diamonds in the rough like the Trilogy of Terrors the Kolchaks the Six Million Dollar Mans that either you know were hugely successful or started a series Um, Satan's School for Girls is one that Again, like Nothing But The Night, I thought it had a lot more substance to it. It'd been about 10 years since I've seen it, and this viewing, I'm like, there's not a lot here. 
this was the movie that I because I watched all three of these with Carla. Uh, well, no, I watched the first two. She listened to Unman Wittering and Zygo. I remember as we watched Satan's School for Girls, and she kind of looked at me, you know, and said, "Not a lot here, is there?" You know, I was like, she didn't really understand why I said, "Oh, I think this is going to be fun. I think you'll enjoy it." And afterwards, I'm like. Uh, it's not horrible, but there's not a lot to right. it. I mean, it's 75 minutes, and, and there's, you know, as far as, like, scary stuff or anything, I mean, a, a, a couple minutes. Crawling maybe. around in the basement, do you think that was scary? I mean, there's it's a spooky basement, but spooky I don't know. Spooky basement, you don't know necessarily what's going to happen, but, uh, yeah, not by today's standards, no. It wasn't necessarily even atmospheric by that point. Yeah. It felt, you know, that's the thing. Some of these made-for-TV movies, <clears throat> they don't feel like a TV episode. This felt like very much like a, a TV episode of, of of a series that we've, you know, <laughs> we wouldn't watch today. It just um, felt formulaic. Yeah, and it, there just was no style to it. It. Yeah, it just, I mean, it just was. I, there were no peaks or valleys, really. It just, and, and the, the revelation. <laughs> that, that's a good review, too. You know, what, what are your thoughts on the movie? It was. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, and like the reveal, it's it like simultaneously came at a time when there were, it was not building, and yet it was expected. It, it's just... Well, the movie tried to to play off the uh, the casting of, of Roy Thinnes as as the uh, Clampett, I guess is what I have the name. And I think he even got special billing in the credits. I mean, it was like guest star or special guest star or something. Admittedly, he's in, what, three scenes. He's in the classroom scene, and then, one, then he kind of shows up at the end, I guess maybe in more than three scenes. But he's absent for a good chunk of the film. So that, that, and by his billing of this, this tells me, yeah, they probably paid him a lot of money, but they had a, they had enough money to get maybe two days work out of him. And so let's, let's kind of, we'll, we'll throw him in this scene here and then, okay, we're going to, he won't pop up for another 30 minutes or so. And then we'll pop him in the last scene and then his reveal of who he was. Yeah, I thought you were going to say something different when you said his name tells you. His name told me he's the bad guy. That's yeah. what that told me. Yeah. I mean, well, yeah, you've got the red herring, right? I mean, and that that was a thing that Carla was asking me. She's like, as soon as you see the other uh, teacher, uh, Delacroix, played by Lloyd Bachner, you know, of course he's yeah, he's he's got the 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 arrogance in the classroom, and he's doing this study, you know, and stuff, and. And she looks and she said, you know, is he the bad guy? And I'm like, kind of shook my head. And she was like, yeah. She says, yeah, it's too obvious. Yep, yep, exactly. It's too obvious. And and then when Roy Thinnis is introduced, you know, uh, is that how you say it, Thinnis? Or is it? That's how I always say When he's introduced, she looks at me and she said, that's the one. And I said, yep. And she says, well, that's kind of predictable. And I said, yeah. And that just kind of really sums up the film. It, it, it very, it very, very much was a, a very formulaic film. Yeah, he's the handsome, friendly, nice professor that all the girls like. And I mean, but there is a good cast, uh, you know, relatively speaking. I mean, so we talked. So Roy Thinnis, I mean, he was big in '73. He had come off of doing The Invaders in the '60s. 
He had been in uh, Journey to the Far Side of the Sun, which I always enjoy that one. They find the the flip, the, the reverse Earth on the other side. The Norlis Tapes, which was, of course, another made-for-television film that was a pseudo-pilot for a series that didn't get picked up. He had some later roles. He was in Battlestar Galactica, uh, The X-Files, and... Were you familiar that he was... Yes, a, I was. May I say it? Yes, you may. I was gonna, I hope you got this next he one. He played Roger Collins in the Dark Shadows reboot for NBC. Yeah. yeah. He was also in the... Around that same period of time, he was in the Invaders miniseries uh, that had... Was it uh, John Boy from the Waltons? Richard Thomas, I think, was the lead in that. I could be wrong. But anyway, he pops up basically playing the David Vincent character and the implication is is that he's been on the run ever since the 60s he had a small role but it was a fun little cameo in that um, I've always seen him pop up in things he's always been a good actor I think I've enjoyed him we mentioned Lloyd Bachner who played the the teacher Delacroix um, character actor lots of different stuff episodes of Thriller Twilight Zone Dynasty uh, yes <laughs> He was in the night. You know, Walker. we have almost as many Dallas and Dynasty references in our shows as we do almost, Doctor Who or Star Trek. Almost, almost, yeah. Uh, he was in the Night Walker, which is a fun flick. He was in uh, the Dunwich Horror. He also was in Battlestar Galactica, and he was also in multiple episodes of the Six Million Dollar Man. You've got the the uh, the women, the girls. Pamela Franklin plays Elizabeth. She is the one who is in search of the what happened to her sister and um she was in a movie uh, a classic ghost story from 61 the innocence have you seen that one yes i have excellent excellent film she was in episodes of night gallery in the sixth sense multiple or what maybe not multiple but she was in at least one episode of the six million dollar man she was also in legend of hell house and food of the gods so she was quite busy in this around this time period Kate Jackson plays Roberta. What was she in before coming onto this film? Oh, well, she was in Dark Shadows, uh, late in its run, and in uh, Night of Dark Shadows, the movie. Yes, and she also then did television work. About this time, she was in The Rookies, and then she went on to do what? Charlie's Angels. Yes, Charlie's Angels fan. And I'll interject there that this movie was a Spelling Goldberg production. Aaron Spelling and Leonard Goldberg, huge, huge movie producers at this time. Almost any hit show had their names attached to it. Um, Aaron Spelling had actually begun his career in 1965. And then a year before this movie came out, uh, partnered up with Leonard Goldberg. Uh, and they, they did Charlie's Angels, so there's probably the connection there of... Kate Jackson and having worked with them before. She was also in the 2000 remake. She played the role of the Dean. The Dean in this film was a headmistress played by Joe Van Fleet. Again, a lot of variety of roles for her. She was in Cool Hand Luke, episodes of Thriller and Hitchcock, and even going farther back in the early days of television, she was in episodes of Suspense and Inner Sanctum and those early television shows based on radio programs. And then we had the young lady, Cheryl Stoppelmoor, uh, a.k.a. Cheryl Ladd, uh, plays the character of Jody. Of course, prior to this, really one of her bigger roles was playing the character of Melody on Josie and the Pussycats. Did lots of TV work around this time. Only sci-fi film she did, or horror film besides this, was Millennium, 
which I believe Chris Christopherson is in that one as well. And she was also in Charlie's Angels. So yes. another Charlie's Angels reference. Yeah. Um, so a good cast. Uh, so just I not have, a lot to work with. Yeah, I have a question about the headmistress. So if there's anything that is mysterious or, or odd or off-putting about the movie, it would be her character, I think. She's at times a red herring, but then... Yeah. What? I'm not even really sure what her issues were and what she, happened. She they changes, don't really explain. She changes midstream. She's clearly a red herring at the beginning. She seems a lot more duplicitous and evil in the first part of the film. And then all of a sudden, the next scene you see her in, she's a drunk. She all of a sudden is like, where'd this come from? You know, like no implications that that's what she was. And all of a sudden, now she's drinking and she apparently knows what's going on, but she's signed some deal with, with Delacroix, which you never, not Delacroix, with uh, uh, Clampett, but you never really get an idea. It's like, you know, what deal what was she made, did she make, or whatever. It was never really spelled out. And uh, yeah, her character was very poorly written. It, it shifts midstream from being, again, the red herring to a lush. And there was one good scene that I I thought was unique, and that's when uh, Delacroix meets his fate, and he's in the what the pond or the lake or something, and the girls are surrounding him all with big sticks, and they just kind of yes. push him down into the water. I thought that was pretty good. That was a good scene. Yeah, there were some good scenes in this film. There's just a lot of of stuff that was it never really. But some of these made-for-TV films, they, they really elevate themselves above, you know, being a made-for-TV film. I mean, Trilogy of Terror is is not your standard made-for-TV fare. I don't think for early 1970s, Kolchak was standard television fare at all, uh, the movies or the or the series. Six Million Dollar Man wasn't either. I mean, it was... It was, you know, treading on ground that really hadn't been been tread before. It's like it's an action adventure series with with sci-fi elements, and and that sometimes people forget that. Other than he's bionic, I mean, he encountered space aliens in the first season. Straight on till morning is an episode I remember that uh, with Meg Foster. She's the one with the cat-like eyes. Um, and they're aliens who have crash landed, and they like the way that they get to Earth is like they, they kind of they hitchhiked on on a satellite or something, and and but as they they're dying because of the atmosphere, they they just they disappear in the wind. They're like they die and they fade away, and then they the winds blows and the leaves blow, and some some great sci-fi stuff that just you weren't seeing, and then you got movies like this where it, it was very formulaic and kind of paint by numbers and this was the height we've talked before about the satanic panic or the the craze yes, in the occult yeah. in the mid-70s so i'm sure that contributed to its success uh, and it's got that yeah you know i can see it i did i you know basically i think for the time it was probably something and it just hasn't aged well we've seen far too much and and too many things like it for it really to have any impact today. Yeah, the the movie was written by Arthur Ross, and... <laughs> this is unbelievable. Uh, go ahead. I mean, no, 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 go ahead. I no, I, 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 you might have more than I do on it. The, I, I didn't have very much, so... Well, you have his big credit, don't you? I don't know. What's your, what he we, wrote Creature from the Black Lagoon. 
Did I? I missed that. See, you must have. See? Wow. Okay. That, that I. Okay. So that, see, uh, that's yeah. why I'm embarrassed. And creature walks among us. Wow. Okay. See, I did not see that. I guess when I was looking at it, I, I was seeing lots of TV work, and then I saw Thirty Foot Bride of Candy Rock, um, which uh, is is Lou Costello. I mean, Abbott and Costello. After they broke up, Lou Costello did one movie. Uh, and he did it like right before he died. Okay, that's even funnier. Yeah, you like, just had to go three more down, and you would have seen Creature Walks Among Us. I, I, I didn't do that, so that's kind of hilarious. It's like, how can you go from Creature from the Black Lagoon to the Thirty Foot Bride of Candy Rock? That's hilarious. Wow. Okay, that's kind of sad though. That in in I guess twenty years time, you went from doing something as fun and, and classic as Creature to this formulaic made-for-TV drivel. So, interesting. Uh, Directed by David Lowell Rich. Again, lots of TV work. Did a Twilight Zone episode or two. And did the Three Stooges film have Rocket Will Travel? Which uh, I believe you saw that one. Yeah, we saw that in Mandogo. Yeah, yeah. So, from a production standpoint, uh, aside from the, I think, the, uh, the creature credit, not... A lot of big stuff coming from the writer, director, and decent cast, but ultimately not a really good story, ultimately. And uh, that falls kind of squarely, I guess, on Arthur Ross. So, you know, it's hard hard to know what he was expected to do. And at the time, this might have been bigger than it's coming across now. This, This is one of those films that hasn't aged as well. We can watch films from the 50s that have simple plots, and we can enjoy it. I think it's maybe the way that the films are made or the execution, and I think that's where the film falls flat. There's not a lot here, but the execution is also kind of poor. So Yeah, I agree. There was one other credit that caught my eye, the composer, Lawrence Rosenthal. Uh, he did a lot of these other TV movies, How Awful About Alan, The House That Wouldn't Die, Sweet Sweet Rachel, The Devil's Daughter, but... We've talked about him before. He did the score for the Island of Dr. Moreau in 1977. Ah, yeah, yeah. And also Clash of the Titans. Very interesting. This is uh, relatively easy to find. Um, ironically, this movie has never been released to DVD officially. Oh, okay. I gotta say officially. Well, uh, I have to... I'm not embarrassed to say. You, I'm a huge Charlie's Angels fan. I had forgotten Cheryl Ladd was in this. I decided I I wanted to own it. So I did order a DVD. It's from Cheesy Flicks, which do you count? That doesn't really count as no. an official, but okay. Anyway. But, che- Cheesy Flicks is, does bootleg films. Okay. So. Yeah. So. Yeah. The, most made-for-TV films are not given official releases. Um, again, I think it's, I don't know, maybe it's a rights issues. I don't know if ABC still owns the rights or... What happens? I always have found it kind of odd that more of those made-for-TV films haven't been given like official releases. Well, but it's how... even odd they're getting unofficial ones. I mean, I remember I've gotten a couple from Alpha Video that are. If you notice, though, um, what you're getting, I mean, what, at least from what I've seen, is that these, and I don't know, maybe they've fallen into public domain, but oftentimes, like the copy I watched was on YouTube, and it was. It, it was a film, you know, it's like a copy of a film. And so I think maybe that's where, because there's no copyrights or no nobody really pursuing the, the copyrights, that 
these these film copies are, are existing and someone makes a copy of it and are putting it out on all these you know bootleg DVDs or pairing it with other films and stuff you know it's not a officially in public domain because otherwise you'd see it pop up on Mill, Mill Creek sets or whatever I always think for me personally that's a good indicator on whether a film has has, has truly gone into public domain or not and as, as much as people want to bash on like Mill Creek or Alpha Video I do believe that those companies have really done a little at least a little bit of due diligence as to what films are truly public domain and which ones aren't and if if they aren't touching these films, then it's, in my opinion, it's safe to say that the film is still under a copyright somewhere. And, you know, if it's popping up from some of these companies like Cheesy Flicks, then, you know, it's kind of slipping through the cracks. Clearly, though, you know, no one's really pursuing it. Because, again, you can find this on YouTube and it's probably just as good a copy as you're going to get on a DVD. It's also on Amazon Prime. And even the DVD copies out there are less than $10. Very easy to find. And a lot of made-for-TV movies are easy to find. You, you can find them on you can find them on YouTube without without too much difficulty. So, again, I think it's, it's an issue of no one's really pursuing because they just don't think that there's a market for it, which I think is sad, but there might be more, more truth to that as we get into this, this era where physical media is dying. That's all I've got for Satan School for Girls. One of those months, you know, this looked better on paper. I think we started off strong with Unman, Wittering, and Zygo. I'd recommend that movie. Nothing but the night. Only if you're a Cushing Lee fan and you've seen most of their other work. I don't know that I could really recommend Satan School for Girls unless you're just in a curious mode for made-for-TV films and you're just wanting to... To, to see what's out there. wouldn't be at the top of the list. There's a lot of other made-for-TV movies which I would watch before this one. So our, our back-to-school theme, we are done with it now. I think I can safely recite this little poem. <laughs> no more pencils, no more books, no more teacher's dirty looks. Someone's probably giving us a dirty <laughs> look for this, for this theme. You know what? We'll come back, I guess, after this, and we'll be talking about what do we have coming up next go around and uh, I think we also have a, a surprise that has come in as yes. we were recording this breaking news breaking news so we'll, we'll be, be right back, back. and yes. I'm going to play the ad for the Time Shifters podcast uh, Christopher Page because we had gone to see the Abominable Dr. Fibes I think we might have mentioned last time we were getting ready to do that yes. at yes, Cinema yes. Go Go coincidentally he was recording an episode about Dr. Fibes uh, we were able to call and leave a message, so... And I called and left a second message. Oh, did I, you? I did. He reached out to me wanting to know what I meant by my comments. Is like, you know, my journey to, like, how many times it took me to, to where I really was getting it. And so I said, well, I'll just, I'll just do another audio clip. And so I, I sent him text and audio, and I said, use what you want. And he, I believe, chose the audio. I haven't listened to the episode yet. But I he, haven't either. He, I, he, I believe he chose the audio. I wrote back because it, we were at the movie. Our message was not very clear and didn't answer his question, really. So he did. He reached out to me also, but I wrote back. Anyway, check out that podcast, and here is a commercial for that.
We let things pile up in the DVR. We add them to our queues. We wait for the DVDs and Blu-rays. We time shift. The Time Shifters podcast. Sci-fi, horror, fantasy, superheroes, comedy, action, film, television, maybe some not-so-current events. Find us on iTunes or at timeshifterspodcast.com. And we're back. We were talking about at the beginning of the show, reaching out virtually to our friends like Jonathan and, and, and Stephen and said, hey, you know, give us a call. And, uh, well, you know what? We got something. As we were recording here, we get a message from Jonathan. He says, hey, guys, I've just left you a voicemail. So we are going to play the voicemail now, and we're going to uh, to talk about what Jonathan and I had to, had to say. It's like, that's the way it works, folks. It's, it's that mind power. It's like, we want to hear from you. Jonathan heard. Let's take, a, let's take a listen and see what he had to say. Hey, guys, it's Jonathan. Uh, this is just a quick check-in. Hope all is well with you, too. Um, I have not done my homework for the next episode of Classic Hearts, but I did hear you both just recently call into Time Shifters to Chris Page's podcast. Uh, I should say Chris and Matt, and I think they have a special guest uh, this week. They're talking about Dr. Fives. Um, so it was great to hear you guys over there. And uh, that screening you saw at uh, Cinema Go Go sounds amazing. Uh, I've seen those films, uh, uh, Dr. Fives and the sequel. I think Fives Rises, Rises Again. Uh, only once, actually. It's one of those films kind of like um, Rich that I had heard referred to um, many, many, many times, seeing uh, very famous images in books and magazines. Um, but only got around to seeing it, God, just a few years ago. Anyway, um, I did really enjoy the Ferrey episode that you guys had. My take home was that... Um, while, you know, she gave, you know, solid performances, sometimes um, sometimes lead performances, sometimes um, secondary, uh, that, um, you know, she was um, strong in the films she did, but nothing, you know, I, I got the impression that, you know, you don't necessarily go out of your way, or at least I would not necessarily go out of my way to seek, to seek out Ferre films, um, but she did appear in some classic genre. Um, films that, you know, we all really enjoy. So, uh, that was great. Also wanted to let you know that I am at, um, episode, approaching episode 20 of Dark Shadows. Uh, Barnabas is on the scene. Um, and I'm glad I watched the first 200 plus episodes, uh, sans Bar- Barnabas. Um, I thought they were great. It was a good way to kind of get into the, uh, I don't know, get acclimated to the, uh, soap opera structure. Um, but now it sounds like um, they're going to start hitting their stride in the next uh, thousand episodes. <laughs> I still have a long way to go. Uh, but I'm really enjoying it. And um, um, I can see what um, folks are saying that, you know, uh, they'd introduce um, different elements uh, and experiment. And I know Barnabas, you know, we're just scratching the surface with him. I understand there's a wolfman later on. Um so, uh, yeah, obviously they're going to dive deep into the horror. But anyway, I have a long way to go, so um, who knows how long it'll take me. I'm seeing it here and there as life allows, you know, with uh, Stella, who just turned one. Um, you know, it's not easy to necessarily uh, binge. Well, a show like that, which you really could not binge. Anyway, I've gone on too long. Hope you guys are well. 
Um, and uh, we'll talk to you soon. Thanks. Bye-bye. Wow. Talk about uh, mind trust or whatever you said, Rich. That is funny that he started talking about the fives thing because, you know, that's how we ended the last segment. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, it, we both this was fun Jonathan because like Rich said we both just listened to that together for the first time and we literally laughed with your Dark Shadows comments about the thousand, thousand oh it's going to pick up somewhere in the next thousand episodes or something that, that's great thanks for the update we appreciate you calling yeah, you know, you talked about uh, you haven't done your homework for this episode. Tell you what, <laughs> we're going to give you a pass. Uh, you can do uh, Unman Wittering and Zygo for extra credit. And uh, you can skip the other two, and I think we'll call it good. And uh, that's my gift to you. <laughs> Spend some extra time with baby Stella. Great hearing from you. You know, we got some good stuff coming up, so I think you'll enjoy what we got coming up in future episodes. So hopefully this... Uh, we're giving you a pass on this one. Uh, we'll we'll give you some extra time with your with your adorable daughter and her little Gamera shirt, and uh, maybe uh, you know maybe Kermit will will get a reprieve, a last minute reprieve. He wasn't looking too good in the picture I saw this morning, and then uh, she was lining up her all of her victims. So that was pretty hilarious. Good to hear from you. If she likes Kermit, you ought to show her the Vincent Price clip with uh, Kermit the Frog from The Muppet Show. That's a, a great, fun little clip. I don't think it'd scare her too much. No, no. I think that's the good little things. you got to introduce you know, these little little snippets of things. And maybe, I don't know if this is too scary for her yet or not, but have you seen the movie Monsters and Aliens yet? Have you ever seen that? I love that movie. That's a, that's a cute movie, and I don't think that'd be too scary for her, I don't think, but... Oh, Gosh. and you know what? Also, Texas Chainsaw Massacre. That oh, might be. <laughs> oh, my God. Uncle Jeff's going <laughs> off the rails again. Uh, no, I don't know. Uh, definitely maybe the Hotel Transylvania movies. Those are cute. Yeah. I actually enjoyed those. I don't know. She's getting to the point where I think you can continue that that horror film education and, and uh, without giving her nightmares and, and uh, you know leaving her scarred for life. We'll just leave that to Uncle Jeff's suggestions. All right, let's move on to our regular features. Videos coming out in September. Kind of a quiet month. That Shout Factory train keeps on chugging through with the Hammer releases. Uh, on the 10th, Blood from the Mummy's Tomb, Scars of Dracula. On the 17th, Straight On Till Morning. Uh, it seems like we're getting to some lesser Hammers, maybe. I like Scars of Dracula, and I'm actually eager that it's coming out. I have not ordered it yet. I need to do that, but... Uh, so I'm glad for that one. The others, eh, I don't know if I'm going to order those or not. Other than that, they've got uh, Circus of Horrors from 1960. I get that confused with all the circus, carnival, terror, horror movies. This one has Anton Differing, Yvonne Monlar, and Donald Pleasance. I thought I saw it, but it just it's not sounding familiar. Does that ring a bell for you? I've seen it. I may, might even have it still in my collection, if not... If I, I know that I've seen it, so if it's not in my collection, that maybe it fell my purge, which that kind of answers your question. Yes, yes. Uh, a movie called Fright from 1971. This has Honor Blackman, Susan George, and Ian Bannon. Looks interesting, but I'm not familiar with that. And again, a movie called Fright is very common. I'm certain there's more than one movie called yeah. Fright. I'm not familiar with that one. Yeah, And then Arrow does have one release, not really horror, probably a more a giallo, is Who Saw Her Die? I mentioned that because George Lazenby is in that. 
Don't know if you're familiar with that at all. Also, Anita Strindberg. No, I'm not. All right. Well, not your wallet gets a rest this month. Yeah, it's uh, it's already weeping of that uh, Godzilla box set from Criterion down the pike. Are you so. saving so you're not caught off guard? Actually, that's going to be on the Christmas list. So you know that's get uh, Christmas birthday and. Um, something, you know, Carl and I didn't really do Christmas presents for each other last year. And, and this year we said we're going to do that. So I've already said, yeah, that, that'll be a nice, nice thing to have on the list. And I said, uh, hopefully it's going to be included as we've talked about in previous episodes, that November criterion half off, uh, sale. So I don't know why it wouldn't. So, uh, with any luck, you know, Santa Claus will, will get a, uh, 50% off coupon. Yeah, and then, of course, you know what that means is that I'll, I'll have to. I, that will probably be bumped to the top of my my two thousand or my twenty twenty viewing list, is to go back and 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 watch those on Blu Ray. And Carla's not a huge Godzilla fan, mostly because she hates to see the <laughs> the the creatures get attacked, <laughs> even though they're bad. She hates any animal violence. So I, um, I texted you a picture, I believe um, that. Comet TV had the Godzilla marathon, and I'm just changing channels. I thought, oh, I'll see what's on. My favorite scene ever of a Godzilla movie was right there. That's when he slides on his tail in Godzilla vs. Megalon. Yes, yes. Birthdays in the month of September. Freddie Jones was born September 12th, 1927. I bring that up because we lost him recently, and I don't know if we mentioned that. He died this year on July 9th. I think that may have gotten lost in Bash. Yeah, maybe, maybe. But Freddie Jones from Hammer and very recognizable character actor. I bet most people would recognize him if they saw him. Faye Ray, September 15th, 1907. We probably mentioned that last month. Grayson Hall, Dr. Julia Hoffman from Dark Shadows, September 18th, 1922. And Martine Beswick. September 26, 1941. It was hilarious that you sent me that text the other night. Now, did you know that in From Russia with Love, you know, Martin was billed as Martin Beswick? We had just seen that as well, uh, as I had just caught that and as the credits were rolling. And I was, I had forgot that the, the music was a little different in that opening than the traditional soundtrack. Because at the start of it, I'm like, is this the same music? And I haven't seen those for a long time. So then when I looked at that credit, I was like, well, that's kind of hilarious. I didn't know that. So And that's why I even got that far, because I saw, oh, it's a Bond movie. I want to hear the song. And then I thought, yeah, I thought that was a little unusual. Uh, so do you ever watch Pluto TV? No, not really. Okay, so Pluto TV is not necessarily something that you have where you can sit down and, and plan your viewing. Pluto TV is a fun app if you just want to sit down, channel surf, and maybe catch something for a period of time. It's commercials, and the commercials are oddly placed. But uh, I don't think that there's more commercials than that than you get on any other regular cable channel. They keep adding a ton of channels to Pluto TV, and folks, it's all free. They've got a Doctor Who channel, and um, you know some of the stuff is in heavy rotation. Well, they've added a James Bond channel. They have the rights to 18 of the Bond films, and they are going to be playing them in heavy rotation between now and the spring when the new James Bond film comes out, No Time to Die. So if you're a Bond fan and you don't have them and you want to watch them for free, Pluto TV is an app you can get, and um, and they, they are playing them. It looks to be almost like the blocks that they're doing in chronological order, so... 
like they were doing the Blo- the Blofeld trilogy in in order. So, uh, fun way to watch Bond flicks if if uh, you know you don't have the, the had them in your collection and don't want to pay for them. Um, and uh, to the best of my knowledge, they are uncensored. They just have commercials in them, so you got to get through the commercials, but. Uh, that's a fun app to have, and they've got good music channels on there and stuff. So for you cord cutters out there, there's also some horror channels, and they do play. One of the channels, the uh, Shout Factory has a channel on there, and they've been playing. Is that free? Yeah, really. Yeah, that's that's part of one of their channels, and they've been playing the uh, British thriller series from the 1970s. They've got horror movie channels. They have, if you're a fan of the Mystery Science Theater and Rift Tracks, they have channels that are playing classic sci-fi and horror flicks all the time so all of it's free mm. see i just i'm afraid that's a rabbit hole for me and uh, it's, i trust me it's like it's it's fun to have you're not going to get stuck in there too much because their programming schedule only goes about two hours in advance and so it's not like you can dvr anything on there it's you know what if you're wanting just to veg and channel surf have that app and and plus they've got some good music channels to have in the background they've got uh, I've got it for, they've got a jazz station and, and all this stuff. It's like the kind of music channels you get through cable, but you don't have to pay the cable for it. You can just, you know, it's a free app. So hmm. fun to have in the background while you're doing stuff. Yeah. Anniversaries of movie releases and this week some television. In September, September 8th, 1960, one of my favorites, Psycho. Kolchak the Night Stalker, the TV series, premiered September 13th, 1974. I'm going to talk about that a little bit later. The Addams Family premiered September 18th, 1964. We were just talking about the trailer for the new animated version of uh, the movie that's coming out of The Addams Family. And then Donovan's Brain, September 30th, 1953, one of our previous episodes we dealt with Donovan's Brain. TV Terror Guide, Svengoolie. Again, we're already into the month. You all will not be able to watch the werewolf that's on tonight on Svengoolie from 1956 unless you have DVR'd it. Uh, looks like repeat month. I, I know that I watched. On the 14th is the 4D Man. I just watched that from a recording of Svengoolie. That's funny. You were texting Carla asking her questions yes. and she's looking at me. How have I not seen this movie? And I said, you chose to go to sleep that night. She was fighting off a flu bug or something, and it was a Saturday night. She went to bed real early, and I sat there and watched the 4D Man. And so I, I was having to... You were asking her these scientific questions, and I was having to explain the movie to her. It was, it was pretty hilarious. Yeah, I don't know why that movie, of all the movies I caught, challenged me to to challenge it with the, the scientific of that's going on in that movie, or the lack <laughs> of. But it, it really caught me. I was in an interesting... You're not, supposed to, you're not supposed to notice the scientificity. I usually don't. The but jazz music reason, in that is supposed to throw you off base. Uh, and the lovely Lee Merriweather comes across as such a sex vixen in that film. I don't know. She, she, her going after the brothers and stuff is just... I don't. It's not how I envision Lee Merriweather. And she looked younger in that as well. And I'm like, she's kind of playing this hot little number that's going after the brothers. And it, that movie's a trip. I enjoyed that movie, but... On the 21st, 13 Ghosts from 1960, and then on the 28th, Dracula from 1931, with a soundtrack. It says in the Svengoolie newsletter that it is the special musical score used on the French DVD version of the movie. 
The score utilizes stock music library compositions, and so many viewers were intrigued by it the last time we ran it. We are including it again. I do remember seeing seeing that on Svenguli, um, but honestly, I can't. Re- I don't remember the music. I just remember him talking about it. Um, I'm always a purist when it comes to to that. You know, I know that. For the longest time, that Philip Glass alternate track has been available, and I don't think I've ever watched it with that track. If I see a movie, I want to see see it with its original track. Silent films are a little different because I, I've seen some silent films with obviously multiple versions, you know, especially like Nosferatu or whatever, or like when you see it with a live music track or live music accompaniment, obviously that's something special. So I think silent movies to me are different but i don't know i i don't know maybe i I, maybe i need to check it out out of curiosity and see see what it has to to offer i mentioned earlier on comet tv the godzilla it's actually the godzilla stompilation and they had i believe it was on labor day the marathon they're going to i I don't know if it's the same order or the same movies but on september 28th starting at nine in the morning will be another all day Godzilla Stompilation Marathon. Stompilation. And then for British slow-moving science fiction, Space 1999 is having a Breakaway Day Marathon on Friday the 13th. Not I sure can, what the connection is. Uh, I, I think that's the date that they break away from the moon, mm. actually. Don't quote me, but I think that's why they're doing that. Okay. TCM's got some good mo- movies this month. On the 10th, Bedlam. 11th, Night of the Hunter. 23rd, Freaks, Bride of Frankenstein, Hunchback of Notre Dame, the 1939 edition of that. On the 27th, we've got sort of a mummy theme, The Mummy Shroud, The Mummy, both Hammer films. Have you heard of Mummy's Boys from 1936? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a comedy. Yeah. Uh, I can't remember who's in it, but... Yeah, I don't see it on very often. Uh, and then on the 29th, it came from outer, Beyond Outer Space and Riders to the Stars. Richard, what's going on in your world? I know you used the long weekend to be very productive in your creative endeavors. What have you been doing? Well, you know, we're winding down the Summer Marks is On series that we've been doing over at KC Cinephile. It's been a lot of fun. Um, you know, as whenever, whenever you go off the track there, I know that you know, it probably doesn't have as much readership as some of the others, but I know some people have been appreciating it. It's been fun to make it the journey through all of the Marx Brothers films and some of the Groucho's solo works and their television works. And uh, that's been a lot of fun. It's been a long time since I've done that. And it's been first time viewings and a lot of that stuff for Carla. So we're winding down um, as we speak on this particular weekend. Uh, there's basically three more articles. I'm going to talk about uh, the next. We got a couple of regular articles coming out this week uh, on the solo works and then the final films and then one more thing to wrap it up on the Wednesday, the last Wednesday of summer. Um, we'll take a look at Groucho, A Life in Review, a stage play that was done in 2001. Um, so we've already started diving into some Vincent Price films. We're going to be covering that in October for 31 Days of Halloween. We're going to be doing uh, Vincent Price Month. So we started off last night with the story of mankind which has vincent price as the devil and has groucho harpo and chico marks as the solo appearances so yes uh my summer theme and my october theme 
meat. How interesting is that? Have you ever seen that movie? No. Good lord, it's a mess. <laughs> um, I, you know, that's a that's Vincent Price is great as as the devil, and uh, Ronald Coleman is basically playing a, a heavenly angel character. And but that is the movie is so bizarre. And it is, it's got so much stock footage, and you've got the casting in that is you've got Dennis Hopper as Napoleon Bonaparte, you've got Peter Lorre as Nero, you've got John Carradine as the Egyptian emperor, uh, Pharaoh Khufu. Uh, <laughs> I mean, the movie's crazy. So, plus, yeah, Harpo Marx as Sir Isaac Newton. I mean, yeah. Uh, it's it's a it's a trippy trippy film, but uh, so yeah, Vincent Price. You know, we're going to be watching a lot of Vincent Price. I've done some recordings for Dread Media. Um, so in the month of September, yeah, September we'll be doing. Uh, I've I've done reviews for Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark, a film that you and I recently saw. Did a um, review of. I'm trying to think now the films that I did. Um, I'm drawing a blank actually. Um, yeah. Anyway, I've done three films. I I'm trying to remember what I did. Uh, oh, God told me to. Uh, saw that on Shutter. So that that was an interesting flick. And then one more that's just totally skipping my mind. In any case, those should be coming up in September. And then in October, to tie in with the Vincent Price theme, we'll be I'll be doing um, three reviews for Dread Media on three of Vincent's movies in the '80s. Bloodbath at the House of Death, Escapes, and From a Whisper to a Scream, none of which are classics, but kind of fit into the Dread Media wheelhouse. So, And, of course, Mimiverse Monthly Audiocast uh, just did Seven Footprints to Satan, which was something I got from Marx Brothers earlier this summer. Thelma Todd is in that movie, and she's in Marx Brothers films, so it got me to watch that movie, and, again, everything kind of tying in, so... Uh, and I'll be covering a Vincent Price film on there in October as well. I'll be doing the 1940 Vincent Price film, Green Hell. Yeah, that's what's been going on at, at the blogs. Things are, are shifting gears to more horror-related stuff after a summer of laughter and uh, gearing up for the big uh, the big Halloween season with a lot of Vincent Price goodness. Was the movie you were trying to think of the Limehouse Golem? No, I I did that, and that was already on uh, Dread Media a couple months ago. I miss hearing so. about that. Yeah, that movie is that movie's done. It's 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 back on the shelf, and uh, yes, I know. I really I'm trying to remember the other one I did, and oh oh my gosh, now I remember the Banana Splits movie. Oh yes. Um. Oh my I gotta gosh. Watch that. You got to watch it. It's I I don't know. You know, Hanna Barbera sold out on that one. If anyone else is out there who's seen it, um, I can't really recommend it. As a horror movie, it's pretty bad. But it's such an oddity of what they're trying to, to turn these beloved Saturday morning characters into, like, killing robots. It's uh, basically, in a nutshell, the Friday Night at Freddy's, if you've heard about that, uh, apparently this is a script, an early script for a version of that film, and when it got rejected, they essentially put the Banana Splits characters in there. And the fact is that they put so much love and attention to this. The guy doing the voices for the Splits actually is is channeling the original actors who did the voices in the 60s so that they sound the same. Mm. And he took it very, very serious. But 
Uh, it's a, it's such a bad movie. Um, it's, uh, it's, 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 I don't know. It's just so weird, but yes, you can listen to my review over at, uh, Dread Media sometime this month. What about you? What's going on? Well, and I had that DVD in my hand, the banana splits, and it, I went in, something else came out that day that I wanted to get. And this is how, this is what it has come to, Richard. I was there holding the DVD for the Banana Splits. I put it back because I thought, I wonder if I can get that on Blu-ray. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> I, yes, you can get it on Blu-ray. You know what I should have given you as my code just to log in? I had like another 24 hours to watch it on Amazon. You could have done that. But I, I, if I was thinking, I would have saved you your time and hassle. But I... I don't know. Maybe you want this in part of your collection. Maybe. This might be one of those films where you're going to say, you know, we need to do a cartoon horror-themed episode for the podcast. So on my one lowly little blog, not compared to all the things you have going on, I am shaking it up a little bit. I'm calling it my new fall season. Uh, We're still going to have a movie of the week on Monday, but I have stopped doing the headline game because I kept running out of headlines, but I have a new one that's going to kick off this week. Yeah, I'm not going to say what it is here. You, you, you can check ClassicHorrors.club to find that out. But that, it should be kind of fun. I'm afraid people are going to cheat, though. It's going to be very easy to find out the answer. Uh, but, yeah, it's fun, you know. Um, I am moving... You mentioned earlier that I was doing Hammer House of Horror... Uh, I'm moving that to Friday to be part of the of the big TV terror guide post on Friday. And since I have completed Hammer House of Horror, I the next show I'm going to dig into one by one is Kolchak the Night Stalker. Ah, okay. I've been wanting to watch that forever. I am afraid it's going to be very repetitive, but I'm trying to think of a way to make it clever because, it, I mean, basically it's Monster of the Week. You may give me a good reason to follow along and, and play along at home because Carla's been itching to start that series. Yeah. She's watched a few of those on MeTV Saturday nights when they were playing them. They're not on anymore, but she loves the series. And, you know, and then she, because she asked me, she's like, Do you have that series? Yes, I've got, I've got the movies and everything. And she, then she looks at me, Why haven't we watched that? <laughs> and I'm like, I don't know. We'll it's not like you've been sitting around twiddling your thumbs. You're always watching something. Some, oh, I know. I know. There's like so much, so much to watch because everything I have is stuff she's interested in. So, but I don't know. We could play yeah, along you at home. To. And if you want to do a guest write up on one of them or something, you're welcome to. Yeah, that'd be fun. That'd or, be fun. Hmm, we should talk about that if we're actually going to do that. Okay, anyway. Uh, and then, like you, I'm also starting work on the Halloween thing. I call it the countdown to Halloween on my thing, 31 Days of Halloween, same thing. But uh, I finally decided late to do ABCs of classic horror, so I'm just basically watching a movie, the first letter of each of the Yeah, the list already made I out didn't. of I do. You need to share that with me. I'm curious. Or, okay. Or do I have to wait like everybody else? Uh, I don't know. Maybe if you if you're if you're nice. I'm I'm curious because yeah. that might give me an idea of some stuff to to introduce Carla to. So uh, yeah, the first of the alphabet is not. <laughs> I, there's a, some doozies I've never seen that have not been terribly good so far. But uh, anyway, and this year I'm doing something a little different. I guess it's not the 31 days. I'm taking Sundays off there's only 26 letters in the alphabet and if i do one that starts with a number that's 27 and there's four sundays there's your 31 so you know on the seventh day gotta rest i'm having to fudge a little bit on mine as well because i didn't have 31 vincent price films to cover i've covered some vincent price films in the past 
I don't want to be repetitious and, and cover something I had previously done. So I, I got the list out and like, okay, I'm going to have to throw a few things in there early in the month that aren't horror. So you're going to get Story of Mankind, House of a Thousand Dolls, his Western, More Dead Than Alive. Uh, <clears throat> Green Hell, I don't think is necessarily horror, but then, you know, I'm going to save the, the big stuff for last. I mean, a sneak preview is like, House of Wax is going to be the last one I'm going to do. So I'm going to do chronological order, but I had to start up. And then we're going to throw some TV stuff in there, some Night Gallery. And uh, what's the uh, the what's the one that we got? I'm looking at the shelf there. Uh, the Time Express. Oh, yeah. That series, uh, I think it's like six episodes long. We're going to crank those out and watch those as well. And I that's definitely not horror. But uh, anyway, yeah, so I had to do the same thing. I had to fudge a little bit. Yeah. I think one of the days I'm... I'm talking about his old-time radio appearances, so which he was very prolific on old-time radio. And I think a lot of time people forget that people like Vincent Price and Boris Karloff did some really good stuff on on radio that are absolutely chilling. And Vincent Price, he was in one of the best old-time radio episodes of all time called Three Skeleton Key. Have you ever heard that? I have. Yeah, so I'm going to be doing an article linking out to some stuff on YouTube and giving some suggestions to people. So I'm looking forward to what you got coming up. So well, and and thank you for the um, segue. Yes, thank you for the segue because I would like to remind everyone that Into the Velvet Darkness, a celebration of Vincent Price, is now available from the We Belong Dead Publishing Group in the UK. Um, look that up at WeBelongDead.com co.uk probably yeah that's or it. just google we belong dead it's weird this has been a long project you know i when i've participated in these i've never really known is my stuff going to be in there or not and you know i think it is there's no reason that it shouldn't be but uh i just i never really got confirmation this time and so when the book got here and i looked at it and and like oh yeah i wrote about that but um vincent price on tv was a big one in there as well as the animated Vincent Price so his uh, appearances when he did voices in cartoons and even appeared as himself in um, Scooby-Doo so. I, I, those books are amazing they're as I've always said they're a little bit pricier but they're well well worth it because they're well put together ton of information they're in color they're glossy pages it's it's well well worth the money so if you haven't uh, you know, some of them have gone out of print. I know the Peter Cushing one went out of print. Now I think there some of their others, unsung horrors and and century of horrors and stuff, are still available. But um, yeah, definitely, definitely get it. So I'm gonna also going to 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 say something because you talked about your lowly one blog. So well, that's horror. Yes, but we we talk about other stuff in here. So I love what you're doing over your DC Comics Guy blog. I'm trying to, to, to nudge you to hype that up more because you're doing a lot of fun stuff. Your Crisis on Infinite Earths is educating me because that was a time period where I wasn't in comics. I didn't get back into it until after all of that. And um, I didn't read Crisis until probably the 90s because, again, I, I was I got back into it after basically after all the all the stuff happened and everything hit the fan then i get back into it and so it's interesting to see all the crossovers that they did and little things that they did and and other comics that i've read and forgot about oh yeah the 
references in All Star Squadron or Infinity or whatever the d- different titles you've listed. Infinity was there? Infinity Inc. Yeah, 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 Infinity Inc. Yeah, all the different things they were doing. So I thought, yeah, that's uh, that's you're having you're doing a lot of fun with that. Yeah, so. I'm enjoying that. Check it out, DC Comics guy. Yeah, no, I I've been loving and, and I am caught up. I, I watched everything this past week, so or read everything this past week, so. Uh, I'm having a lot of fun. Yeah, with they're that. just little bite-sized things. They're not won't take up a lot of your time. Easy read, and and uh, and if any of the links don't work, just let me know, and I'll fix them. <laughs> uh, so, what are we doing next time, Rich? You know what? I think next month will be a little more fun because it's October, and I wanted to. I threw out, I was like, hey, can we do something maybe Vincent Price related, so I can kind of tie it into my blog. And I think at that point, you hadn't really come up with your your uh, alphabetical idea and you said that yeah let's go with that so we kind of spun that off and so we are doing three horror anthology films next month one of which is Vincent Price's Twice Told Tales from 1963 and I really wanted to do Dead of Night from 45 which just came out on Blu-ray from Kino Lorber and uh, then you suggested Asylum from 72 uh, which is um, Peter Cushing, and um, that is which, Amicus. Amicus, yeah. yeah, Amicus did that. I was trying. Is that Amicus? Yeah. So uh, yeah, I said I haven't seen that in a long time. So yeah, those three great trilogies, three trilogies, anthologies, a trilogy of anthologies. <laughs> Next month will be a lot of fun. Richard, how can you get hold of us other than our Facebook group page, The Classic Horrors? Club. You can call and leave a voicemail at 616-649-2582. That is 616-649-CLUB, C-L-U-B. You can uh, also shoot us an email, and that is classic... <laughs> All right, just tell me what it Classic is. club at gmail.com. I never email that, so... Yeah. And anyway, we can read your email on the uh, air, or you can send us uh, an audio clip of your choosing, and we can play that uh, as well, so we can do that. And uh, you know what? You can also comment on Facebook. Uh, we've done that as well. Sometimes discussions happen on Facebook, and we will mention that on the show um, as well. So We've even gotten some comments on SoundCloud before. That's where, I guess, technically the show is hosted. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's hosted on SoundCloud, and then, of course, you can get it through all your various uh, podcast sources. Of course, we're on iTunes. I believe that's it. Do you have anything else, sir? No. All right, so why don't we end on this note with this little song. Satan's School for Girls by Party Wreckers from the 2019 release Go Forth and Piss Off Others available on Apple Music. I didn't know that was going to say that. Okay, and see, now we've now we're rated like mature because of that. I am Rich Chamberlain. I'm Jeff Owens. Thanks for listening. Take care. Take care.